Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com There was a New York Times Magazine cover story about you recently, and in that article you described when you were young witnessing your father throw a white man down the stairs because your father thought this man was coming up the stairs after his daughters was your father afraid that this man was coming to abuse you and your sisters i think he thought so so i think his own experience in georgia uh would have made him think that any white man bumbling up the stairs uh, toward our apartment was not there for any good. And since we were little girls, he assumed that. I think he made a mistake. I mean, I really think the man was drunk. I don't think he was really trailing us. But the interesting thing was, A, the white man was... He survived. B, the real thing for me was I thought, I felt profoundly protected and defended. Um, I was not happy because after my father threw him down the steps all the way out into the street, he threw our tricycle after him. That was a little bit of a problem since we needed our tricycle. But that made me think that there was some deviltry, something evil about white people, which is exactly what my father thought. He was very, very serious in his hatred of white people. What mitigated it was my mother, who was exactly the opposite, who never rejected or accepted anybody based on race or color or religion or any of that. Everybody was an individual 
whom she approved of or disapproved of based on her perception of them as individuals. It sounds, you, you said that this uh, incident made you feel protected. It sounds terrifying, though, for two reasons. One is that your father basically gave you the idea that this man was coming upstairs to do you harm. And two, watching your father not only throw him down the stairs, but throwing your tricycle down the stairs after him, it sounds like that would be a little frightening to see also. Well, if it was you and a black man was coming up the stairs after a little white girl and the white father threw the black man down, that wouldn't disturb you. I'm trying to think that through. I guess, you know, I think, My I think it's, it's a product about... of being in this, like, not very violent, uh, working-class, middle-class family wh- where I didn't, I didn't see a lot of violence when I was growing up. So any violent act um, would probably have been very unnerving to me. Well, <clears throat> it was my father who could do no wrong. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think of it as, oh, look, my father is a violent man. He never, you know, spanked us. He never quarreled with us. He never argued with us. He was dedicated and he was sweet. So he did this thing to protect his children. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, September 5, 2019. So I have been told uh, before we get started uh, again, I know we have uh, a lot of listeners uh, in the Florida Georgia, uh, Southeast region of the United States, and even the Caribbean. We've had guests on the program uh, from the Caribbean region as well. I know the Bahamas uh, had uh, incredible destruction. I hope everyone uh, dealing with uh, Hurricane Dorian uh, is taking uh, maximum safety precautions uh, to protect your life. We are in a system of racism, white supremacy, so racists, even in emergency times, uh, have shown that they practice racism as opposed to go to help storm victims if they are non-white, especially black. So take maximum uh, precautions uh, if you are in those areas. Uh, We will be thinking about everybody down there and hoping that you are taking excellent care of yourself. Uh, I know for Florida, that's where we're supposed to be uh, in December uh, for our 10-year anniversary counter-racist yoga retreat. Hopefully, things will be safe. Won't be any problems. And by then, hopefully, hurricane season will be over uh, so that we can all just be safe and do some yoga, eat well, uh, and talk about replacing white supremacy with justice. Uh, If you are interested uh, in more information, drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com. There is a blog post with all of the information, details, dates, and the itinerary for the event. The dates again, December 28th to January 1. Stay safe in Florida, the Caribbean, beyond. This is our book club second session on Toni Morrison's, the late Toni Morrison's 1981 novel, Tar Baby. Uh, We just started it last week. Uh, This is our second session. Uh, We are picking up on the session uh, in chapter two, where Jadine buried her head. That's where we're starting at for chapter two. Uh, Again, 
Uh, these chapters are a little bit long, so sometimes it's challenging to be able to stop right at the end uh, of a chapter because they're so beefy. Uh, we got the beginnings of information about our interracial relationship. Might be more than one tragic arrangement. Uh, in the book last week, we'll get more information on that as we proceed. Uh, my suggestion would be to pay attention to the names of the characters in the book. Most folks who author deliberately name their characters. Toni Morrison, no different. We will get started. Context of white supremacy, the great Tony Morrison's Tar Baby audio segment number one. Jadine kicked off the sheet and buried her head under the pillow to keep the moonlight out of her eyes and the woman in yellow out of her mind. When Jadine had gotten out of bed to stare at the hills, Valerian woke up. He had finished chatting to the ceiling and into his wrist the exact spelling of the message. These ice boxes are brown, broken perspective. V-I-O-L-I-A-X is something more and can't be coal note. He had sipped the brandy rather quickly, annoyed by the day's turn of events, and had lain for a while thinking how impossible it was that, unlike other men, he had been pushed into a presidency but had to fight for his retirement. When he was 39, he swore that he would quit at exactly 65 before he started spending his days traveling from the executive toilet back to his desk where the ballpoint pens mounted on marble had gone dry and his pencils were always long and sharp. That he would never permit himself to become the industrial nuisances his uncles had, stubborn, meddlesome, hanging on to their desks with their fingernails, flourishing once or twice a year when a crisis occurred with an old client or a new FDA official that needed their familiarity or style or some other antiquated company charm. His uncles had been good to him. Their mother, Valerian's grandmother, had four sons, each of whom had married a woman who had only girls, except Valerian's mother who delivered one girl and one boy who was the future of the family. When his father died and Valerian was seven, the uncles gathered to steady everybody and take over the education of their dead brother's son since it was, they said, self-understood that he would inherit the candy factory. And just to show how much they loved and anticipated him, they named a candy after him. Valerian's. Red and white gumdrops in a red and white box. Mint flavored the white ones, strawberry flavored the red. Valerian's turned out to be a slow but real flop, although not a painful one financially, for it was made from the syrup sludge left over from their main confection, Teddy Boys. What's the matter with them? asked the uncles. Faggoty, said the sales reps. Faggoty? Yeah, like Valentine's. Can you see a kid sitting on a curb tossing those fairy candies in his mouth? Seasonal is all we can do. Valentine's Day. Give us something with nuts, why don't you? Nobody in the East or Midwest touched them. They sat in movie house display cases and on candy store shelves until they were hard as marbles and stuck together like grapes. But somebody's buying them, the uncle said. Jigs, said the salesman. Jigs buy them. Maryland, Florida, Mississippi... Close the line. Nobody can make a dollar selling faggoty candy to Jigs. 
but when they move north, don't they ask for what they got in Mississippi? Hell no, they're leaving the South. When they move out, they want to leave that stuff behind. They don't want to be reminded. Alaga syrup is dead in New York. So is gold dust soap, and so are valerians. Close it out. But they didn't close it out. Not right away, at least. The uncles let the item sell itself in the South until the sugar shortage of the early 40s, and even then they fought endlessly to keep it on. They went to the bathroom, to lunch, read food industry literature, and held caucuses among themselves about whether to manufacture a nickel box of valerians in Mississippi where beet sugar was almost free and the labor, too. Ooh, valerian, said the box. And that was all. Not even a picture of the candy or a happy face eating it. Valerian appreciated their efforts, but recognized them as sentimental and not professional, and swore again he would retire exactly at 65, if not before, and would not let his ownership position keep him there making an ass of himself. After all, he was the first partner with a college education and a love of other things. And it was because of these other things, music, books, that all the way through a nine-year childless marriage to a woman who disliked him, all the way through a hateful, shoddy, interminable divorce, all the way into and out of the military service, he could be firm. After the war, he went to a convention of industrial food appliance sales in Maine and stepped out for a breath of winter air. There, on a float with a polar bear, he saw Miss Maine. She was so young and so unexpectedly pretty, he swallowed air and had a coughing fit. She was all red and white like the Valerians. So already, at 39, he was showing signs of the same sentimentality his uncles had. It made his resolve even firmer. Out of respect for the company, the industry, he would do what they required the Swedes and Germans who worked for them to do, retire at 65. After all, it was a family shop. They had taken a little bit of sugar and a little bit of cocoa and made a good living for themselves and 90 others, and the people who lived in the factory's neighborhood stayed there and loved it there largely because of the marvelous candy odor that greeted them in the morning and bid them good night. Smelling it was almost like having it, and they could have it too, way back then, because damaged lots of teddy boys were regularly given to children and homeless men. And when the homeless men found themselves on a train in Oregon or a camp in Boulder, Colorado, they remembered the delicious smell of Philadelphia with far more pleasure than they remembered its women. The childhood of the children growing up in that candy air never quite left, and may have been why they never quite grew up. They moved to Dallas and Altoona and listened to other people's stories of childhood politely but without envy. They seldom tried to describe their own, because how could you make another person know what it was like? All you could say was, There was a candy factory in our neighborhood, and it smelled so good. So they kept it to themselves and kept their childhood longer than they should have in Dallas and Altoona and Newport News. And the Street Brothers Candy Company never left the neighborhood or forgot the workers. It expanded, but right on the block and behind the original building. 
They hired more salesmen, and even when they bought machines to do what the Swedish and German women had done, they kept them on in other capacities, although it was clear they had no need for them, out of respect for Grandmother Stott and out of respect for the industry. They had six good items by the time Valerian took over, and all the women were dead, but not the uncles, and it was because of this same respect for the industry and its legendary place in the neighborhood and the hearts of those who lived there that he was determined to retire at 65 before he got foolish. He married Miss Maine, and when she had a baby boy, he was as relieved as the uncles, but resisted the temptation to introduce a new confection named after his son. By that time, they had reduced the size of the Teddy Boy's hats, which nobody connected anymore to Theodore Roosevelt. An error the uncles encouraged, since the candy had been made first by their workaholic mother as a treat for Theodore, her youngest son, and later on to sell for pin money. Hers were big, chocolatey things like gingerbread boys, but when they went into business, they were much smaller. Now you couldn't even see the Teddy Boy's buttons. Through it all, Valerian never swerved from his 65 timetable. He prepared for it, bought an island in the Caribbean for almost nothing, built a house on a hill away from the mosquitoes, and vacationed there when he could and when his wife did not throw a fit to go elsewhere. Over the years, he sold off parts of it, provided the parcels were large and the buyers discreet. But he kept his distance and his dream of getting out of the way at 65 and letting his son take over. But the son was not charmed by Teddy Boys or Island Retreats. Valerian's disappointment was real, so he agreed to the company's sale to one of the candy giants who could and did triple the volume in two years. Valerian turned his attention to refining the house, its grounds, mail service to the island, measuring French colonial taxes against American residential ones, killing off rats, snakes, and other destructive animal life, adjusting the terrain for comfortable living. When he knew for certain that Michael would always be a stranger to him, he built the greenhouse as a place of controlled, ever-flowering life to greet death in. It seemed a simple, modest enough wish to him, normal, decent, like his life, fair, generous, like his life. Nobody except Sidney and Andine seemed to understand that. He had never abused himself, but he thought keeping fit inelegant somehow and vain. His claims to decency were human. He had never cheated anybody, had done the better thing whenever he had a choice, and sometimes when he did not. He had never been miserly or a spendthrift, and his politics were always rational and often humane. He had played his share of tennis and golf, but it was more for business reasons than pleasure, and he'd had countless discussions with friends and clients about the house he was building in the Caribbean, about land value, tax credit, architects, designers, space, line, color, breeze, tamarind trees, hurricanes, cocoa, banana, and fleur de fuego. There had been two or three girls who had helped him enter the fifties. Lovely, lovely. Nothing to worry Margaret had she known. Merely life preservers in the post-fifty ocean, 
helping him make it to shore. There was a moment during the war when he thought some great event was in store for him, but it never happened. He was never sent with the message the world was waiting for. He knew the message was not his, that he had not thought it up, but he believed he was worthy of delivering it. Nothing of the sort befell him, so he returned to civilian life, a bachelor, intact, until he saw Miss Maine, whom a newspaper published by the envious grandfather of a runner-up called A Principal Beauty of Maine, looking like the candy that had his name. His youth lay in her red whiteness, a snowy valentine valerian, and bride of polar bear became his bride. The disgust of the aunts at his marriage to a teenager from a family of nobodies dissolved with the almost immediate birth of his son. Valerian didn't need a youth then. The boy was that. Now the boy was a grown man, but perpetually childlike, so Valerian wanted his own youth again and a place to spend it. His was taken from him when his father died, and his mother and aunts all changed from hearty, fun-loving big sisters to grave, serioso mamas who began their duties by trying to keep him from grieving over his father's death. Luckily, a drunken woman did their laundry, and although he stayed on one year past 65 to make some changes and another year past that to make sure the changes held, he did manage to retire at 68 to L'Arbre de la Croix and sleep the deep brandy sleep he deserved. Margaret was not dreaming, nor was she quite asleep, although the moon looking at her face believed she was. She was experiencing the thing insomniacs dread, not being awake, but the ticky-tacky thoughts that fill in the space where sleep ought to be. Rags and swatches, drain cloths and crumpled paper napkins, old griefs and embarrassments, jealousies and offense, just common ignoble scraps not deep enough for dreaming and not light enough to dismiss. Yet she was hopeful that sleep would come, that she would have the dream she ought to, for maybe that would dispel the occasional forgetfulness that plagued her when she forgot the names and uses of things. It happened mostly at meals, and once, years ago, with the princess telephone, which she picked up with her car keys and address book and tried to stuff in her purse. They were rare moments, but dark and windy enough to last. After lunch with friends, you could go to the powder room, twist the lipstick out of its tube, and wonder suddenly if it was for licking or writing your name. And because you never knew when it would come back, a thin terror accompanied you always, except in sleep. So there was peace and hope on the face of this beautiful woman born to two ordinary-looking people, Joseph and Leonora Lordi, who had looked at their beautiful red-headed child with shock and amazement. Of course there was no thought of adultery. Leonora was sixty before she showed the world her two bare legs. But the hair bothered Joe, caught his eye at the dinner table and ruined his meals. He looked at little Margaret's skin, as delicate as the shell of a robin's egg, and almost as blue, and stroked his thumb. Leonora shrugged and covered her head with lace older than Maine itself. She was as puzzled as her husband, but not as alarmed. Although it did look funny at the 9.30 mass, Margaret's head glowing like an ember among the cold, dark heads of her other children. 
She couldn't explain it and didn't try, but Joe never left off stroking his thumb and staring at his little girl's blue-if-it's-a-boy blue eyes. He stroked his thumb and stroked his thumb until he smashed his temple with his fist, having just remembered Buffalo. The Buffalo great-aunts Celestina and Alicia, twins with hair the color of saffron and the white skin of the North, he roared and began to tell people about his buffalo aunts, whom he had not seen since he was six. And although his brothers shouted, yeah, yeah, when he reminded them, he thought he saw doubt in the eyes of his friends. Thus began a series of letters to Buffalo, inviting the twins to South Suzanne. They were flattered by his letters, but could not understand the sudden affection from a great-nephew they did not remember. For a year they declined to pay a visit on account of advanced age, until Joe offered to pay their bus fare. Where, asked Leonora, where will they sleep? And Joe touched his fingers. Adolph, Campy, Estella, Cesar, Nick, Nuzio, Michelena, or any of the other Lordies scattered around the county. Leonora looked at the ceiling, covered her head with lace older than Maine itself, and went to Mass to beg for sanity, Madre de Dio, if not peace in her house. The aunts came, and when Joe picked them up at the bus station and saw that the saffron had turned to garlic, he smashed his temple again. It turned out better than nothing, however, for he was able to regale them in the presence of company about losing their flaming hair, and they smiled and acknowledged that it had certainly been lost, which was proof enough for everyone that such hair and such skin had existed at one time and therefore could legitimately reappear four generations later on the tiny head of Margaret Lenore. Still, it left its mark on her, being that pretty with that coloring. Joe and Leonora left her alone after the buffalo aunts went home. Maybe her beauty scared them a little. Maybe they just felt, well... At least she has that. She won't have to worry. And they stepped back and let her be. They gave her care, but they withdrew attention. Their strength they gave to the others who were not beautiful. Their knowledge, what information they had, they did not give to this single beautiful one. They saved it, distributed it instead to those whose characters had to be built. The rest of their energies they used on the problems of surviving in a county that did not want them there. During the months when the earth permitted it, Joe and his brothers dug a hole in the ground. They cinder-blocked it, topped it, and put in a toilet and a gas line. Little by little, the Lordies moved out of their trailer across the yard into the cinder-block basement. They lived huddled and quite warm there, considering what Maine winters were like. Then Joe started the first floor walls, and by 1935, all six of them were in a seven-room house the Lordy brothers had built with their own hands. Leonora rented the trailer, but kept its backyard for peppers, corn, fat squash, and the columbine she loved beyond reason. But Margaret always loved the trailer best, for there, the separateness she felt had less room to grow in. In the hand-built house, and later in the big brick house on Chester Street, after her father and uncles bought two trucks and began Lord D. Brothers, the loneliness was only partially the look in the eyes of the uncles and the nuns. 
Much of it was the inaccessibility of the minds, not the hearts of Leonora and Joseph Lordi. So when she got married eight months out of high school, she did not have to leave home. She was already gone. She did not have to leave them. They had already left her. And other than money gifts to them and brief telephone calls, she was still gone. It was always like that. She was gone, and other people were where they belonged. She was going up or downstairs. Other people seemed to be settled somewhere. She was on the two concrete steps of the trailer, the six wooden steps of the hand-built house, the 37 steps at the stadium when she was crowned, and a million wide steps in the house of Valerian Street. It was just her luck to fall in love with and marry a man who had a house bigger than her elementary school a house of three stories with pearl-gray S's everywhere, on cups, saucers, glasses, silverware, and even in their bed. When she and Valerian lay snug in bed, facing each other and touching toes, the pearl-gray S on the sheet hems and pillow slips coiled at her, and she stiffened like Joan Fontaine and Rebecca until she learned from her husband that his ex-wife had nothing to do with it. His grandmother had had some of the monograms done, and his mother the rest. Margaret's relief was solid, but it did nothing to keep her from feeling drowned when he was not there in the spaciousness of that house, with only a colored couple with unfriendly faces to save her. Alone in the house, peeping into a room, it looked all right, but the minute she turned her back she heard the afterboom, and who could she tell that to? Not the coloreds. She was 17 and couldn't even give them orders the way she was supposed to. It must be like room service, she thought. And she asked them to bring her things, and they did, but when she said thank you and sipped the Coca-Cola, they smiled a private smile she hated. The woman, Undine, cooked and did the cleaning, the man too, and he also had morning chats with Valerian, brushed his clothes, sent some to the laundry, some to the cleaners, some disappeared altogether. There was nothing in that line for her to do but amuse herself in solitude, and, awful as that was, the dinners with Valerian's friends were worse. There, men talked about music and money and the Marshall Plan. She knew nothing about any of it, but she was never stupid enough to pretend she did or try to enter the conversation. The wives talked around the edge of such matters, or dropped amusing bits into the conversations, like the green specks and cannoli filling. Once, a wife whom she showed to the downstairs powder room asked her where she had gone to school, and she said, South Suzanne. What's there? asked the woman. South Suzanne High School, said Margaret. The woman gave her a wide, generous grin for a long time, then patted Margaret's stomach. Get to work fast, sweetheart. Margaret lived for the concerts Valerian took her to, and the dinners for two at restaurants, and even alone at home. Otherwise, it was solitude with the colored couple floating mysteriously through the house. In the fourth month of her marriage, she sat on the screened porch listening to Search for Tomorrow when Andine passed by with a can of linseed oil and said, Excuse me, did they arrest Joan Barron yet? Margaret said no, but they must be about to. Ooh, said Undine, and began to fill her in on the cast of characters. 
Margaret was not a regular listener, but she became one with Ondine, and a maiden friendship flowered. Margaret was not afraid anymore, although it was some time before Sidney did not inspire her with awe. She looked forward to the chats with Ondine, whose hair was black then, and dressed, as she called it, once a month. They talked about Valerian's family and South Suzanne and Baltimore, where Ondine was from. Ondine was just about to show her how to make crust, and Margaret by then knew the honor of the offer, since Ondine didn't like sharing recipes or kitchen space. When Valerian put a stop to it, saying she should guide the servants, not consort with them. The next thing you know, they'd be going to movies together, which hurt Margaret a lot because taking in a movie with Ondine was definitely on her mind. They quarreled about it. Not because Margaret thought Valerian was wrong. She had never known him to be and doubted if he could be in error about anything. Not him. Not with those calm eyes or that crisp, quiet voice that reassured and poked fun at you at the same time. And although the theme of her defense in the argument was that Ondine, if not all colored people, was just as good as they were, she didn't believe it. And besides, that wasn't the point of the disagreement anyway. Valerian was never rude to Ondine or Sidney. In fact, he pampered them. No. The point was not consorting with Negroes. The point was her ignorance and her origins. It was a nasty quarrel and their first in which they said regrettable things to each other that resulted in not touching toes in the night. It frightened Margaret, the possibility of losing him. And though she abandoned the movie idea and still sneaked into Andine's kitchen of an afternoon, she took the advice of the lady in the powder room and got to work fast. When the baby was born, everything changed, except the afterboom, which got louder and louder, and even when she carried her baby through the rooms, it was there as soon as she turned her back. It had been a horror and a pleasure to teach little Michael how to count by walking him up those wide stairs, flashing white like piano keys. One, two, three. His little hand in hers, repeating the numbers as they mounted each tread. No one would believe that she loved him, that she was not one of those women in the National Enquirer that she was never an overprotective or designing parent with unfulfilled dreams. Now that Michael was an adult, of all the people she knew in the world, he seemed to her the best, the smartest and the nicest. She liked his company, to talk to him, to be around him. Not because he is my son, she told herself, my only child, but because he is interesting and he thinks I am interesting too. I am special to him not as a mother, but as a person, just as he is to me. In wanting to live near him, she was not behaving like a brood hen. Quite the contrary. She had cut the cord decisively and was enjoying her son as an individual. He was simply better society than her women friends, younger, freer, more fun. And he was better company than the men of her acquaintance who either wanted to seduce, lecture, or bore her to death. She felt natural, easy, unafraid with Michael. There was no competition with him, no winning, no preening, no need to be anybody but who she was, and in his presence she did not forget the names and uses of things. 
It wasn't always that way. When he was an infant, he seemed to want everything of her, and she didn't know what to give. She loved him even then, but no one would believe it. They would think she was one of those mothers in the National Enquirer, and since she was not anything like them, she fell asleep finally, but did not have the dream she ought to. Down below, where the moon couldn't get to, in the servants' quarters, Sidney and Undine made alternate trips to the bathroom and went quickly back to sleep. Undine, dreaming of sliding into water, frightened that her heavy legs and swollen ankles will sink her. But still asleep, she turns over and touches her husband's back. The dream dissolves, and with it, the anxiety. He is in Baltimore now, as usual, and because it was always a red city in his mind, red brick, red sun, red necks, and cardinals, his dream of it now was rust-colored. Wagons, fruit stands, all rust-colored. He had left that city to go to Philadelphia, and there he became one of those industrious Philadelphia Negroes, the proudest people in the race. That was over fifty years ago, and still his most vivid dreams were the red, rusty Baltimore of 1921. The fish, the trees, the music, the horses' harnesses. It was a tiny dream he had each night that he would never recollect from morning to morning so he never knew what it was exactly that refreshed him. They were all asleep now. Nothing disturbed them. Not the moon, certainly, and certainly no footsteps in the dark. Chapter 3 Fog came to that place in wisps sometimes, like the hair of maiden aunts. Hair so thin and pale it went unnoticed until masses of it gathered around the house and threw back one's own reflection from the windows. The sixty-four bulbs in the dining-room chandelier were no more than a rhinestone clip in the hair of the maiden aunts. The gray of it, the soil and swirl of it, was right in the room, moistening the table linen and clouding the wine. Salt crystals clung to each other. Oysters uncurled their fringes and sank to the bottom of the tureen. Patience was difficult to come by in that fuzzy call, and breathing harder still. It was then that the word island had meaning. Jadine and Margaret touched their cheeks and temples to dry the places the maiden aunts were kissing. Sidney, unbidden but right on time, circled the table with steps as felt as blackboard erasers. He kept his eyes on the platter, or the table setting, or his feet, or the hands of those he was serving, and never made eye contact with any of them, including his niece. With a practiced, sidelong glance, he caught Valerian pressing his thumb to the edge of the soup plate, pushing it an inch or so away. Instantly, Sidney retraced his felt steps to clear the plates for the next course. Just before he reached Margaret, who had not yet touched anything, she dipped her spoon into the bisque and began to eat. Sidney hesitated and then stepped back. "'You're dawdling, Margaret,' said Valerian. "'Sorry,' she murmured. The maiden aunts stroked her cheek and she wiped away the dampness their fingers left. "'There is a rhythm to a meal. I've always told you that. "'I said sorry. I'm not a fast eater.' 
Speed has nothing to do with it. Pace does, Valerian answered. So my pace is different from yours. It's the souffle, Margaret, Jadine interrupted. Valerian knows there's a souffle tonight. Margaret put her spoon down. It clicked against the china. Sydney floated to her elbow. She was usually safe with soup, anything soft or liquid that required a spoon, but she was never sure when the confusion would return, when she would scrape her fork tines along the china trying to pick up the painted blossoms at its center or forget to unwrap the amaretti cookie at the side of her plate and pop the whole thing into her mouth. Valerian would squint at her, but say nothing, convinced that she was stewed. Lobster, corn on the cob, all problematic. It came, it went. And when it left, sometimes for a year, she couldn't believe how stupid it was. Still, she was careful at table, watching other people handle their food, just to make sure that never again would she pick up the knife instead of the celery stalk or pour water from her glass over the prime ribs instead of the meat's own juices. Now it was coming back. Right after she managed to eat the correct part of the mango, in spite of the fact that Andine tried to trick her by leaving the skin on and propping it up in ice, she had dug in her fork recklessly, and a slice came away. Right after that, Sydney presented her with a plate of something shaped like a cardboard box. Now she had hesitated to see if the little white pebbles floating in her bowl were to be eaten or not. It came to her in a flash. Oysterettes! And she had dipped her spoon happily into the soup, but had hardly begun when Valerian complained. Now Jade was announcing a new obstacle, souffle. Margaret prayed she would recognize it. Mushroom? she asked. I don't know, said Jadine. I think so. I hate mushrooms. I'm not sure. Maybe it's plain. I like it when it's hot, plain and fluffy, said Margaret. Well, let's hope that's what we get. Omelette's more likely in this weather. Valerian was fidgety and signaled for more wine. The only thing I dislike about this island is the fog. It may not be good for eggs, but it's doing a good job of souffleing my hair, said Jadine. I should have had it cut like yours, Margaret. She pressed her hair down with both palms, but as soon as she removed them, her hair sprang back into a rain cloud. Oh, no, mine's so stringy now, said Margaret. But it still looks okay. That's why that haircut's so popular, you know. Uncombed, even wet, it's got a shape that suits the face. This shaggy dog style I wear has to be worked on, and I mean worked on. Margaret laughed. It's very becoming, Jade. It makes you look like, what was her name, in Black Orpheus? Eurydice? Chi, Margaret, chi, said Valerian. Eurydice, chi. Remember her hair when she was hanging from the wires in that streetcar garage? Margaret continued to address Jadine. You mean the hair in her armpits? Jadine asked. She was uncomfortable with the way Margaret stirred her into blackening up or universaling out, always alluding to or ferreting out what she believed were racial characteristics. She ended by resisting both, but it kept her alert about things she did not wish to be alert about. 
Margaret's blue-if-it's-a-boy blue eyes crinkled with laughter. No, I mean the hair on her head. It was lovely. Who noticed her armpits? I would like to stay well through dessert, ladies, if you please. Could we find another topic? Valerian, could you for once, just once? Say, Jadine broke in, what about Christmas? That's a topic we need to talk about. We haven't even begun to plan. Any guests? She picked up the salad utensils from the bowl of many-colored greens Sidney held near her. Oh, I meant to tell you the Von Brandts sent a note. Brandt, Jade, just plain Brandt. The Von is imaginary, Valerian said. Margaret took hold of the long wooden handles poking out of the salad bowl that Sidney held toward her. Carefully, she transferred the greens to her plate. Nothing spilled. She took another helping, and it arrived safely also. She sighed and was about to tell Jade to decline the Brant's invitation when Valerian shouted, What the hell is the matter with you? Startled, Margaret looked around. He was glaring at her. Jade was looking at her plate while Sidney leaned near her wrist. What? she said. What? looking down at her plate. It was all right. Nothing spilled, nothing broken. Lettuce, tomatoes, cucumber, all there. Then Sidney set the bowl on the table and picked up the salad spoon and fork. She had left them on the table. Oh, I'm sorry, she whispered, but she was angry. What was so awful about that? They had looked at her as though she'd wet her pants. Then quickly, they pretended it had not happened. Jadine was chirping again. Well, anyway, they want you both for dinner. Small, she says, but the Hatchers are having a big weekend thing, and they want... She paused for half a heartbeat. Their faces were closed, snapped shut like the lids of jewelry boxes. They thought you'd like to come for the entire weekend. Christmas Eve, a dinner party, then breakfast, then some boating in the afternoon, then... then a cocktail party with dancing. The journeymen from Queen of France are playing. Well, they're not really from there. New Jersey, I think, but they've been playing at Shea Marin. She couldn't go on in that silence. What's the matter, Margaret? Let's go back to armpits, Margaret said. The maiden aunts smiled and tossed their maiden aunt hair. We'll do nothing of the sort. You were saying, Jade? Valerian drained his wine glass. Jadine shrugged. Are you planning Christmas here or where? Here, quietly, although we may have a guest or two. Oh, who? Tell her, Margaret. Michael is coming for Christmas. Margaret's smile was shy. But that's wonderful, said Jadine. Valerian thinks he won't. He will, though, because I promised him this really terrific present. What? Can you tell me? A poet, said Valerian. She's giving him his favorite poet for Christmas. Isn't that so, love? You make everything I do sound stupid. I thought I described it fairly. It's not the words. It's the tone. Margaret turned her head to Jadine. I've invited B.J. Bridges for the holidays, and he said he'd come. He used to be Michael's teacher. And Michael doesn't know? 
Not exactly, but he'll guess. I gave him a hint, a big one, so he could. I used a line from one of Bridges' poems in my letter, and he glittered when he walked. Then you may as well have your nervous breakdown right now, said Valerian. He won't come. You've misled him entirely. What are you talking about? He's on his way. His trunk's already been shipped. That is not a line from anything Bridges ever wrote. Michael will think you're dotty. It is. I have the poem right upstairs. I underlined it myself. It was the one Michael used to recite. Then Bridges is not only a mediocrity, he's a thief. Perhaps he was using it as a quotation or an illusion. Jadine fiddled with her hair. He'll think you're batty and... Valerian, please, and go snake dancing. Then I'll go with him. We've been all through this, Margaret. When will you know for sure? Jadine's voice affected lightness. She already knows for sure. The rest is hope and a determination to irritate me. Irritating you doesn't have to be determined. All anybody has to do is breathe a slice of your air. Must you always speak in food measurements? The depression is over. You are free to leave something on your plate. There's more. There really is more. I don't have to sit here and listen to this. You're trying to ruin it for me, but you're not going to. I tear my life apart and come down here for the winter, and all I ask in return is a normal Christmas that includes my son. You won't come to us. We have to come to you, and it's not fair. You know it's not. This whole thing is getting to be too much. Is that a problem for you, having too much? That's not what I mean. I know what you mean, but is it a problem for you? Because if it is, I can arrange for less. I could certainly do with less myself, less hysteria, less shouting, less drama. Jadine, unable to think of anything to do or say, watched tomato seeds slide into the salad dressing and set about applying the principles of a survey course in psychology. During the two months she'd been there, Valerian and Margaret frequently baited one another and each had a dictionary of complaints against the other, entries in which... From time to time, they showed her. Just a May and December marriage, she thought, at its crucial stage. He's 70. She's knocking 50. He is waning, shutting up, closing in. She's blazing with the fire of a soon-to-be setting sun. Naturally, they bickered and taunted one another. Naturally. Normally, even. For they were decent people. Over and above their personal generosity to her and their solicitude for her uncle and aunt, they seemed decent. Decent like Sidney and Nanadine were decent. And this house full of decent folk situated in the pure sea air was exactly where she wanted to be right now. This vacation with light but salaried work was what she needed to pull herself together. Listening to Margaret and Valerian fight was a welcome distraction just as playing daughter to Sidney and Nanadine was. But recently, a few days ago, last night, and again tonight, flecks of menace lay in these quarrels. They no longer seemed merely the tiffs of long-married people who alone knew the physics of their relationship, who, like two old cats, clawed each other, 
used each other to display a quarrelsomeness neither took seriously, quarreling because they thought it was expected of them, quarreling simply to exchange roles now and then for their own private amusement. The heavy would appear abused in public. The aggressive and selfish one would appear the eye and heart of restraint before an audience. And most of the time, like now, the plane of their battle was a child, and the weapons public identification of human frailty. Still, this was a little darker than what she had come to expect from them. Bits of blood, tufts of hair seemed to stick on those worn claws. Maybe she had misread their rules. Or maybe, most likely, she wasn't an audience anymore. Maybe she was family now, or nobody. No, she thought, it must be this place. The island exaggerated everything. Too much light, too much shadow, too much rain, too much foliage, and much too much sleep. She'd never slept so deeply in her life. Such tranquility and sleep made for wildness during the waking hours. That's what it was. The wilderness, creeping into Valerian and Margaret's seasoned and regulated arguments, subverting the rules so that they looked at each other under the tender light of a 70-year-old chandelier bought by Valerian's father in celebration of his wife's first pregnancy, lifted their lips and bared their teeth. She never liked me, Margaret was saying. From the very beginning, she hated me. How could she hate you from the beginning? She didn't even know you. Valerian lowered his voice in an effort to calm her. That's what I'd like to know. She was perfectly polite and gracious to you in the beginning. She was awful to me, Valerian, awful. That was later when you wouldn't let Michael visit her. Wouldn't let? I couldn't make him go. He hated her. He'd shrink at the very... Margaret, stick to the facts. Michael was two or three. He couldn't have hated anybody, let alone his aunt. He did, and if you had any feelings, you would have hated her too. My own sister? Or at least told her off. For what, for God's sake? For having a private wedding instead of a circus? You never invite them down here, and she's probably upset about it. That's all. And this is her way of... Dear God... You have screamed at me for years for having too many people. Now you want me to invite Sissy and Frank? I don't believe... I didn't say that. I don't want her here any more than you do. I am only trying to explain why they didn't let us know about the wedding. From what I gather... What do you mean, us? She invited Michael, but not me. Stacy's idea. Do you think if Michael got married, I would invite Stacy and not her parents? Margaret, I don't give one goddamn. She's always treated me that way. You know what she did to me the first day I met her. I suppose I should, but I don't. You don't? No, sorry. What she said to me that first day? It's been some time. About my cross? Your what? My cross, the cross I wore. My first communion present. She said for me to take it off, that only whores wore crosses. Valerian laughed. That sounds like her. You think it's funny? In a way. That your own sister... My God! Margaret, you didn't have to do it. Take it off. 
Why didn't you tell her to go to hell? Why didn't you? I don't remember. Because you agreed with her, that's why. That my bride was a whore? You know what I mean. All I know is that you let her get under your skin, and she's still there after 30 years. You don't give a gnat's ass about the wedding. You just want it to be anywhere Michael is. You can't stand for him to be wherever you are not. That's not true. You wanted to crash some fat-headed wedding because Michael was there. You are too stupid to live. I don't have to sit here and be called names. Idiot. I married an idiot. And I married an old fool. Of course you did. Who else but an old fool would marry a high school dropout off the back of a truck? A float, Margaret shouted, and when the wine glass bounced from the centerpiece of calla lilies and rolled toward him, he didn't even look at it. He simply watched his wife's face crumple and her boy-blue eyes well up. Oh, said Jadine, this is maybe... Margaret? Would you like to... But Margaret was gone, leaving the oak door swinging behind her and the maiden aunts cowering in the corners of the room. Sidney, unbidden but right on time, removed the glass and placed a fresh white napkin over the wine spot. Then he collected the salad plates, replacing them with warm white china with a single band of gold around the edges. Each plate he handled with a spotlessly white napkin and was careful as he slipped it from the blue quilted warmer not to make a sound. When the plates were in position, he disappeared for a few seconds and returned with a smoking souffle. He held it near Valerian a moment for inspection and then proceeded to the sideboard to slice it into flawless, frothy wedges. Jadine considered her souffle while Valerian signaled for more wine. It seemed a long time before he murmured to her, Sorry. Jadine smiled, or tried to, and said, You shouldn't tease her like that. No, I suppose not, he answered, but his voice held no conviction, and his twilight gaze was muddy. Is it because she wants to go away? asked Jadine. Of course not. Not at all. Michael? Yes, Michael. He said nothing more, so Jadine decided to exit as quickly as she could manage it. She was folding her napkin when suddenly he spoke. She's nervous, afraid he won't show. I'm nervous, afraid he will. There was another silence as Jadine struggled to think of something purposeful, even relevant, to say. She couldn't think of a thing, so she gave up and said the obvious. I remember Michael. He's... Nice. She recalled an 18-year-old boy with red hair and cut-off jeans. Quite, said Valerian. Quite nice. If he does come, as well as his friend, how can it hurt? I don't know. It depends. On what? Things outside my control. I can't be responsible for things outside my control. He pushed away his plate and drank his wine. Jadine sighed. She wanted to leave the table but didn't know how. Does he want me to stay or doesn't he, she wondered. Does he want me to talk or doesn't he? All I can do is ask polite questions and urge him to talk if he feels like it. Maybe I should go to Margaret or change the subject 
or have my head examined for coming here. No one asks you to be, she said softly. That's not the point, whether I'm asked or not. A lot of life is outside, and frequently it's the part that most needs control. He covered his lips with his napkin for a while, then uncovered them and said, Margaret thinks this is some sort of long, lazy vacation for me, designed to hurt her. In fact, I'm doing just the opposite. I intend to go back at some point. I will go back, but actually it's for Michael that I stay. His protection. You make him sound weak, the way you say that. I don't remember him that way at all. You did know him, didn't you? Valerian looked at her with surprise. Well, not really know him. I met him twice. The last time when you invited me to spend the summer in Orange County. Remember? Jadine perked up, animated by her own memory. My first year at college? He was there, and we used to talk. He was, oh, clear-headed, independent, it seemed to me. Actually, we didn't talk. We quarreled about why I was studying art history at that snotty school instead of, I don't know what, organizing or something. He said I was abandoning my history, my people. Typical, said Valerian. His idea of racial progress is all voodoo to the people. I think he wanted me to string cowrie beads or sell afro combs. The system was all fucked up, he said, and only a return to handicraft and barter could change it. That welfare mothers could do crafts, pottery, clothing in their homes, like the lace makers of Belgium, and voila, dignity and no more welfare, Jadine smiled. That's exactly what the world is waiting for. Two billion African pots, said Valerian. His intentions were good. They were not good. He wanted a race of exotics skipping around being picturesque for him. What were those welfare mothers supposed to put in those pots? Did he have any suggestions about that? They'd trade them for other goods. Really? Two thousand calabashes for a week of electricity? It's been tried. It was called the Dark Ages. Well, the pottery wasn't to be utilitarian. Jadine was laughing. It'd be art. Oh, I see. Not the Dark Ages. The Renaissance. It was a long time ago, Valerian. Eight years? Nine? He was just a kid then. So was I. You've grown. He hasn't. His vocabulary, perhaps, but not his mind. It's still in the grip of that quizzling little prince. Do you know it? Know what? That book, The Little Prince. No, I never read it. Saint Exupery. Read it sometime. And pay attention not to what it says, but what it means. Jadine nodded. It seemed like a perfect exit line to her, since she didn't know what he was talking about and didn't want to pursue his thoughts if they were anything like his eyes at this moment. Without melanin, they were all reflection, like mirrors, chamber after chamber, corridor after corridor of mirrors, each one taking its shape from the other and giving it back as its own until the final effect was color where no color existed at all. Once more she stirred to rise from the table, and once more he stopped her, not irritably this time, but with compassion. Did they trouble you? 
the things he said that summer? For a while. You knew better? I knew the life I was leaving. It wasn't like what he thought, all grits and natural grace. But he did make me want to apologize for what I was doing, what I felt. For liking Ave Maria better than gospel music, I suppose. Nothing on Sidney's face showed his disappointment that the souffle had not been completely eaten up by either one of them. He collected the dishes with his look of alert serenity and stepped through the hair of the maiden aunts with an easy, silent tread. He was perfect at those dinners when his niece sat down with his employers, as perfect as he was when he served Mr. Street's friends. The silver tray of walnuts the equally silver bowl of peaches he brought in, and a jiffy later, the coffee, all were exactly and surreptitiously placed on the table. One hardly knew if he left the room or stood in some shadowy corner of it. Jadine leaned her cheek on her fist. Picasso is better than an Atumba mask. The fact that he was intrigued by them is proof of his genius, not the mask-maker's. I wish it weren't so, but... She gave a tiny shrug. Little matches of embarrassment burned even now in her face as she thought of all those black art shows mounted two or three times a year in the States. The junior high school sculpture, the illustration-type painting. Eighty percent ludicrous and ten percent derivative to the point of mimicry. But the American blacks were at least honestly awful. The black artists in Europe were a scandal. The only thing more pitiful than their talent was their pretensions. There was just one exception, a stateside black whose work towered over the weeds like a sequoia. But you could hardly find his stuff anywhere. You look sad, said Valerian. He must really have made you suffer. You should have mentioned it to me. I wanted that summer to be an especially pleasant one for you. It was. Actually, it was good he made me think about myself that way, at that place. He might have convinced me if we'd had that talk on Morgan Street, but in Orange County, on a hundred and twenty acres of green velvet? She laughed softly. Can you believe it? He wanted us to go back to Morgan Street and be thrilling. Us? He was going with you? Just to get us started. He meant us blacks, Sidney, Andine, and me. Sidney? A potter? Valerian turned his gaze toward his butler and laughed. Jadine smiled but did not look at her uncle. You can see how much he knows about Sidney. And I haven't given you one thousandth of what I gave him, of what I made available to him. And you have fifty times the sense he does. I don't mind telling you. Valerian's sentences changed tempo. They were slower, and it was taking him longer to blink his eyes. Margaret did that. She made him think poetry was incompatible with property. She made a perpetual loser of one of the most beautiful, the brightest boy in the land. He held his forehead for a moment. To Jadine, he seemed terribly close to tears, and she was relieved when he merely repeated himself. The most beautiful, the brightest boy in the land. 
he didn't turn out the way you wanted? No. You want him to be something else? I want him to be something at all. Maybe he is. Yes, an adolescent, a kitten, but not playful, complaining, a complaining kitten, always mewing, meow, meow, meow. You shouldn't hate him, though. He's your son. Context of white supremacy. Highlighted that right at the end. Important. Uh, Gus T. Renegade, we are done with the first uh, audio segment. Uh, we'll pick up <clears throat> second audio segment. We will be in chapter three with the paragraph, first sentence, it's uh, Valerian took his hand from his forehead and stared deep into the peaches nestled in their silver bowl. That's what we'll pick up at for the second audio segment in chapter three. If you have questions, thoughts, suggestions to share, the number to dial is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605 313 Five one six four, the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. A quick question: I I feel much better about the book this week than I did last week. I was a bit confused uh, about some of the characters and just kind of getting adjusted we don't normally read fiction and uh some of the the conversations at least for me it took me a little while to get adjusted uh accurately with all right who is everybody here this is who sydney is this is who valerian is this is who margaret is got it got the characters i feel much better i had to go back and reread some portions to get my balance but i'm feeling great now Feeling really settled now that we're three chapters in. <clears throat> what do people uh, make of Teddy Boys? That's the candy, the street candy uh, empire. Uh, these Teddy Boys, chocolate candy. So many Dr. Welsing moments. What do what do people make of that? Uh, and even the uh, Valerian, they made it named a, a candy after Valerian Street, one of our main characters thus far. Uh, this red and white candy, uh, and it's a flop. Turns out to be terrible. What what do people make of that? Uh, and what do people make of the seeming, what would I call it, contempt uh, that the, uh, or at minimum criticism, uh, that the father Valerian has of his son, Michael. They're talking about whether or not he's going to come back to the island. He's white man talking about his white child. Uh, what do we make of that uh, contempt? Uh, that's why I said that last uh, sentence here. Where he's talking about his child. He says, uh, Valerian, he's talking about his child. He says, an adolescent, a kitten, but not playful. Complaining, a complaining kitten to have a white man describe his white son who's not a child 
as a complaining kitten who is always meowing. What do people make of that? What 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 is Toni Morrison commenting on uh, in this arrangement here? White masculinity. Hmm. Interesting use of the word fair. Folks have thoughts on that as well. That might be one to track. Uh, star six one. If you have thoughts, questions, suggestions, uh, see if folks are feeling any better uh, about the book two weeks in. Uh, after last week, we started off. You know, some folks said it was kind of an adjustment. Star six one. If you have a thought or question, uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Abby Hurt. Greetings, Henry in Chicago. Greetings, uh, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, the uh, the part where they were talking about uh, uh, they were talking about uh, Valerian, I guess, going over his background uh, when uh, and the part where it says when his father died. Uh, who, uh, when his father died, Valerian was seven. The uncles gather, uh, gathered to steady everybody and take over the education of their dead brother's son, since it was said, self-understood, that he would inherit the candy factory. Uh, this is an example of why uh, we as non-white black people don't have communities, and this is why white people have communities. Uh, they take care of their own uh, in this particular fashion. So that's an example of it. And I think there was an example also, uh, another example where the Street Brother Candy Company never left the neighborhood or forgot the workers, but it expanded right on the block and behind the original building. Uh, so that's an, another example. And I think in Margaret's case, it was also... Uh, it was also noted, but I don't think I took a note of that as well. Um, one thing that uh, I, I brought—I brought this up uh, last week in regards to the theme of loneliness—and I noticed that with, you know, with Valerian's background, Margaret's background, they—they they both uh, the 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 storyline kind of gives us a theme of loneliness. But however, the difference is is that it really never affected their quality of life. Uh, you know, being white people in the system of white supremacy, it doesn't, loneliness doesn't affect uh, white people as much as, say, you know, non-white people or non-white black people especially. So uh, I got that theme of uh, loneliness uh, as well with, with these two. And obviously um, their interactions um, are very, uh, you know, very... Uh, volatile uh, in a way and uh being uh two people uh, fighting you know two white people fighting uh and the system of white supremacy does have a hierarchy within itself where the men are on top and the women there you know are below them but at the same time uh they're both white people and all other non-white people are far below them so uh it's a fight that uh that they exemplify but it's not something that uh, we don't take sides uh, because we're not on either of their sides. Uh, so uh, it's uh, something that uh, that uh, that Toni Morrison kind of uh, points out in a book that even though these two are fighting each other, uh, that 
you know, we're not part of that battle. And it, and it also exemplifies with Jadine where she, she doesn't even, she doesn't even try to like, you know, referee or interact with them when they're, you know, taking, taking shots at each other. So uh, that's kind of, that kind of points out. And uh, in, in regards to the candy, um, the, the question that you, that, uh, that you asked is kind of reminds me of, uh, of black consumption, uh, the delectable Negro type of thing, uh, eating chocolates, uh, that, that sort of thing kind of, kind of stands out uh, with me. Uh, that's all I have on me in my life. Mm. Delectable Negro, how often does it uh, get referenced on the program? Uh, I did have one quick question. Uh, excellent point about them keeping the street uh, confectionery empire and them keeping the business in the neighborhood, as they say. Uh, even when they expanded, they opened up new stores there. And uh, when uh, Valerian's father died, his uncles and other family got together to take charge of him. That that is a is the community, the white community. Be clear. However. You said that loneliness doesn't impact white people the same way that it does uh, non-white people. Uh, just put a pin in that uh, evidence. Uh, but that's, that seems like it might be deviating from the book, but just put a pin in that. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we've not heard from you at all, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Yes, ma'am, be heard. Greetings, Mr. Demery Ford. Yes, greetings, Seth. Greetings to the other callers, listeners. Uh, I agree with the uh, last male caller. And on piggybacking off of him, uh, when Valerian was a little boy and his father died and he was the only male, then they made over him because he was going to inherit the, the company. And I think that that has a clue to why he and his son do not get along because his son seems like has rejected that idea of inheriting the you know, the wealth and all of that. He's kind of, uh, <clears throat> I guess, one of these benevolent whites that's uh, telling Nadine to, that she should be speaking up for people and all this stuff. So it gives us a little clue to what his uh, mindset is. Uh, and that part about the candy, uh, the generations of wealth inherited, you know, by whites, and in this case, the candy factory, um, these guys were manipulating um, FDA officials and uh, naming candies after their sons and each other. And that's kind of what <clears throat> power and domination looks like when you can just manipulate and change the whole environment. Uh, Get rid of the snakes and the rats and what all else that uh, offend you and just create your own uh, reality. That's what domination is all about. And uh, I, too, am a little bit clear this week 
because I was uh, confused about the image about the woman in the yellow dress. But it seems that um, J.D. had, he tried him at dream, so it was a big impact on her. And I think what happened there is she wanted, she had become, uh, I guess she was celebrating because she had her picture in the LA magazine and she went to the store to get some things. She ran to a beautiful black woman. But she wanted the woman to like her. Uh, and when the woman sat on the ground, I think she took that as an insult. It shocked her. But uh, I think the sitting on the ground was, I had given it a lot of thought. And although maybe in some island countries, sitting on the ground may be permitted or may be normal, but in this case, I think it was meant as a rude gesture. So uh, <clears throat> that stuck in her mind, and now she's starting to think uh, really about her blackness, I think, because uh, she told about how Ma she hated when Margaret uh, forced her to uh, blacken up or to be universal, uh, universally out you know, ferreting her, harassing her uh, into uh, being a certain way that she don't want to be. So she's quite identified. She has a little cop in her head, a little white traffic cop is directing her. And <clears throat> she even made uh, comments about her own hair uh, being a shaggy dog style and commenting or complimenting Margaret on her hairstyle, even uncombed and even wet, how it just looked good and it was the shape of her face and all of this. But her hair had to be worked on, and I mean worked on. <laughs> she put her hand on her head and pressed it down, it popped right back up. So she is, uh, I think dealing with self-image and these symbolisms of the redhead child, Joseph and Leona, um, had the little redhead child and he thought that maybe his wife had been uh, fooling around on him. Uh, Margaret <clears throat> and uh, Valerian was arguing about uh, uh, Margaret becoming friends with Odina. And so as they was arguing, <clears throat> she was making the point that Odina was uh, just as good as we are. But in, in Syria, she didn't really even think that herself. And I think that points to some of these benevolent whites or these uh, anti-racist whites that get up and talk and speak up for uh, non-white people and they don't even believe what they're saying themselves. So I'll meet my line on that, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Mm. 
Much obliged, Mr. Demery, for a good point with the comparison contrast to some of the well-meaning do-gooder whites. Uh, They do not even believe the lies that they are spewing to victims of racism and probably being paid well to do so. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Star 6-1 for other folks if you have comments, questions. Uh, you want to make sure you share. I'll keep an eye on the switchboard uh, as I am going through some of my notes as well. Uh, I did think it was important. As I said, I was confused last week. First time reading this book. Sometimes Toni Morrison's work can be challenging. Absolutely. I went back and I that was part that I reread uh, the scene. Jadine, this black female with the yellow dress. Uh, Toni Morrison uses the word tar to describe her fingers as she's going out. This African woman clutching three white chalk white eggs in her tar black fingers. And then she goes to spit at her. I thought that was important uh, invocation of uh, tar to describe a black person. We are reading Tar Baby. Uh, Notes from this week. Let's see. Skipping over some... Okay, getting to last week. I thought there were so many... Man, oh man, the delectable Negro. And Dr. Welsing, the ISIS papers, because she talks about... She has a a whole section in the ISIS papers. Oh, I got my book here. uh, Where she talks about uh, candy. Valentine's Day. Doesn't she have a whole section where she's talked about that before? We've had her on the program on Valentine's Day. What is she... Consumption of nuts. She's talked about that with her theory of white genetic annihilation so to have and this is about we're going to name candy after a child a white child who's going to take over we'll name a candy after him teddy boys the chocolate candies the prime seller the teddy boy and even even that name uh, talking about white masculinity uh, it's teddy boys teddy boys even teddy for Teddy, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, supposed to be a teddy bear, all that. But um, that's the, the big seller, the chocolate teddy boys. And then they have these Valerians that are red and white and get compared to his wife, Margaret, uh, the principal beauty of Maine, uh, these candies. And they're a colossal flop. No one wants them. And in fact, they don't, don't, they don't just say that they're a flop. They say specifically, uh, why are they a flop? And Tony Morrison writes, faggoty. Don't know if she could get away with that in 2019. Faggoty? Yeah, like Valentine's. Can you see a kid sitting on a curb tossing those fairy candies in his mouth? Seasonal is all we can do. Valentine's Day, give us something with nuts. Why don't you? And then they even get worse than that. They're not just faggoty. Somebody's buying them, the uncle said. Jigs, said the salesman. Jigs buy them. Maryland, Florida, Mississippi. Maryland, uh, Mr. Demi Four. Uh, Close the line. Nobody can make a dollar selling faggot candy to jigs. Heavens. 2019. Can you even get that published? Uh, Jigs is niggers. I don't know if people are as familiar with that one. That one is a tad uh, older. If you maybe watch old television or old films, you'll hear 
black people referred to as uh, jigs. I think uh, Mr. Jay-Z, in addition to taking criticism for their, his NFL deal, uh, he also took some criticism uh, for being nicknamed uh, Jig, Jigger, all of that, because that has been uh, a racial slur specifically for black people. Uh, but what do we make of That's just one people can ponder. We can think about that for the book. But in my view, what a testament in terms of white masculinity. You got this faggoty candy that's named after his son. Red and white. It's compared to, even though it's named after his son, it gets compared to his wife. It's a flop. And he talks at the end of the uh, section that we read uh, about his son. He compares him to a cat. Most people don't really think of uh, complaining kittens as being representative of masculine. I certainly don't think most people say, how do you, how would you want your father to describe you uh, as a grown adult, quote unquote? I don't think most of us would want to be described as a complaining kitten. I don't even think uh, anybody, period, male or female, would want to be classified as a complaining kitten. Commentary on white masculinity, me thinks. Uh, next. Yeah, and then they do the whiteness thing with the candy, too. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Before I get to that, uh, the sexual inappropriateness. I just said me, too. Let me get that again. Uh, they mentioned Yardman last week. This is a black character who I guess he's kind of a get whatever you need type person and he can run errands probably do some uh groundskeeping for you landscape work whatever you need journeyman type person uh he was rumored to bring different ladies onto the island as companions and they said sometimes as young as 14 certainly that would be rape inappropriate uh behavior and then we got valerian and margaret now my reading of this there's a 20-year age gap between these two so when they met if she is a late teen even early 20s he would have been like 40 because it says uh, when they're talking about their big argument that happened in front of Jadine later in this portion that he's in his early 70s and she is in her late 40s almost 50 so he's like 21 22 years older than her uh, if I mean I don't know we got parents out there if you had a daughter or even a son and they were 19, 20 and a white or even a non-white 41 year old said, hey, your daughter, your son is kind of cool, kind of cute. I think that could be my soulmate. What? <laughs> like, uh, Come on, come on, come on. Two illustrations of that in the book. Now, getting back uh what made me think of that to begin with. They give more information about how they hooked up and she was this beauty queen. Where did she get that uh, handle from? Principal Beauty of Maine. When she won their beauty pageant and was de uh, declared Miss Maine. And it says, until he saw, let me give you the, he knew the message was not his, that he had not thought it up, but he believed he was worthy of delivering it. Nothing of the sort befell him, so he returned to civilian life a bachelor intact until he saw Miss Maine, whom a newspaper published by the envious grandfather of a runner-up called a principal beauty of Maine, looking like the candy that, his, that had his name. His youth lay in her red whiteness, a snowy Valentine Valerian. 
and Bride of Polar Bear became his bride. Oh, and then even the disgust of the aunts at his marriage to a teenager from a family of nobodies dissolved with the almost immediate birth of his son. There, I'll stop right there. I think all of that is important. We're talking about the uh, the community, whites, that right there. We understand this marriage is supposed to be about promoting the business of racism, white supremacy, not some uh, idiot uh, who, you know, you could do better, get somebody more powerful so we can strengthen our empire of domination, not this, you know, moron here. Uh, but all of that goes to the wayside. You have a white son, all of that forgiven. Uh, her whiteness, in her red whiteness even. Uh, I think Dr. Welsing even talked about that and why you have the colors on the flag, the red, white, and blue, and what that means, uh, the melanin deficiency. I think she's talked about all of that uh, either on this program and or in the actual ISIS papers. Uh, let's see, I'll leave that there. Great uh, illustration in talking about that argument with... Uh, Margaret and Valerian uh, about her relationship with Undine when they first got married and she's lonely. And I think that's important for so many reasons. We talked about loneliness. She marries uh, Margaret. She marries Valerian. She's lonely. She's down here in the tropics in the Caribbean. Yeah, I'm still a racist, but I'm hanging out here. I don't have my friends. I'm hanging out with his friends. They're talking about the Marshall Plan and all this stuff that I don't understand. I can't even participate, and I'm not going to try and fake it like I can participate. I'll just hang out with the help that has been done. They got whole movies, piles of them, books uh, about that. So she's hanging out with her. Maybe we'll even go to the movies together. Yeah, I'll take this jig, this jig uh, to the movie. I don't have anybody else to hang out with. And again, husband comes in. What are you, stupid? What's wrong? You can't get the silverware together. You're hanging out with the jig staff like you ordered them around. You are the boss. You're not hanging around. And the wife, it's not that I'm ignorant about that. I'm just lonely. I know this is a nigger. I know I'm supposed to boss the staff around. I don't even believe that. I'm trying to even start off from a premise that, you know, they're just like us. Yeah, she's just a nigger. Anyway, that's not even, that's not the point. That's not even what I'm trying to get to, Valerian. The point of all this is, and she continues with her argument. I thought that was important for so many reasons. Uh, exactly what Mr. Demryfor says, that whites lie to non-white people on a regular basis. They are aware of their lie. I think that gets brought up to whether white people lead their own lies. They do not. Uh, I might even say, wow, Toni Morrison, for this to be coming out in 81, is making a pretty sophisticated uh, critique of white supremacy within this uh, novel. Uh, let's see, continuing. <clears throat> Moving to, ch oh, Black Orpheus, 1970s film, came out before I was born. Very popular film at the time that it was released. If you catch uh, people who've seen the film, uh, it's... Brazilian film, so it's in Portuguese. You have to uh, read the subtitles. For some reason, I think that film came up in our book club specifically before. Now, if you challenged me, man, it would be a struggle uh, to pick the book, but I feel like we talked about this before, referenced it before. I'm curious if anybody has seen Black uh, Orpheus. I know it's been mentioned on The Cows. I think another book specifically talked about it. Uh, 
let's see next the critique of of uh the son michael i think is important they talked last week about him going from different so-called indian tribe to tribe and then going out to work at uc berkeley and and his kind of this week his rejection uh of the candy factory and uh i think odin she had the line on dean about the line about uh him coming into the kitchen to liberate her and oh you should do pottery and all that we've heard this uh kind of do-gooder uh so-called white liberal uh maybe even the modern uh what they call anti-racist white person, uh, Jane Elliott, Tim Wise uh, type white person. You could even take them backward in time. That would be like 1960s uh, type white person. It's about communism. I'm a socialist down with the establishment. We're going to sit out and smoke. It sounds like some of what he was doing. They were talking about uh, the brownies, the magic, but they talked about that last week. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you could put him anywhere you know, in time, relatively speaking, the white person who is deceptive and goes and hangs out with black people, they might even present, it'll be interesting, I don't know how the book unfolds, they present him as, oh, he's kind of rejecting some of the values of his uh, parents, uh, and even his dad is supposed to be presented, and even that's interesting, because they talk about the dad, they give that big presentation at the beginning, that's why I say pay, pay attention to the word fair, about his dad, Valeria, he's fair. His wife says that he's fair, and I would always uh, concede. I would think that he's right on pretty much everything. He's always right. And how fair he is, and he always tries to do the right thing, even sometimes when he didn't have an option. They said that explicitly, that he would still try to do the right thing by people. Uh, Mr. Demerifor already mentioned about him keeping the factory there, would keep, take care of our workers, and he does right by Sydney and his staff, allegedly, uh, Dean, that he's a good white man. He might well have been his son at some point. The do-gooder white person of Philadelphia gave out candy to all the children in the neighborhood, right? That's what they said, and the homeless people. Uh, His son, I don't want to do all that. Forget that. I don't want to travel. I don't want to run the candy business. I want to go around and hang out with the colored help, tell them they should make pottery instead of being on welfare, barter and exchange goods, buck the system. Uh, I bet he is probably doing some tragic arrangement as well, uh, that he's practicing racism, white supremacy in a different manner than the father. But we'll see. Uh, what I guess what do folks think of the, the critique of, of the son, uh, Margaret, and Valerian's uh, critique of their child? Uh, amidst any of the other comments that we have shared, uh, if any any folks that we missed, uh, the folks that are still uh, have their hands up already, if you all have additional comments, questions, feel free. I'll keep an eye out, folks, on the switchboard. If you all have thoughts, questions that stood out, or even things that you didn't understand. Uh, Gus, I'd, I'd like to mention something. You reminded me that movie, The Black Orpheus, uh, it was a very attractive actress in it. Uh, let me see if I can say her name right. Marpisa Don, D A W N. You know, when, when uh, Margaret made the statement, if she was hanging upside down, in a streetcar garage, then 
uh, that's what made uh, Jadine say something about the underarm hair, the hair in the pits of the underarm, because she was hanging upside down. If you was going to say her hair looked lovely or it looked good, why did you have to pick a scene where she was hanging upside down? Anyway, and uh, I'd like to say this other thing is I found out that that old TV show was called Angus and Andy, and one of the characters was Kingfish, and the where she got the name Beulah, she was the first black woman that had a show. It was called Beulah, and she was a domestic. And then I think Diana Carroll, after that, she was the first black woman on TV that was not a domestic. So anyway, during the Amos and Andy uh, episode, there was one episode where I guess Kingfish came up with the idea for a taxi cab called the Fresh Air Taxi Cab. And the taxi cab didn't have a front windshield. And so it was supposed to be in all hilarious. But the local toy company made toy cabs without windshields. The two black guys sat in it and gave one of the toys to Teddy Roosevelt. So she may have been making reference to that when she said that the candy, the Teddy boys, were made in honor of Teddy Roosevelt. He was given some of the candy. So I think that she's a brilliant writer, and then we have to pay attention to uh, things that's closely related like that because it seems ridiculous that uh, the president at that time would uh, subscribe to, uh, you know, racist uh, paraphernalia. But we all know that they all do, and it's probably going on right today. I'll move my line. Much obliged, uh, Mr. Demery for, uh, I could not remember the street. I've seen black Orpheus, but it's been, uh, some years. Uh, I was thinking, is she talking about the scene where she dies at the end? Like, that's what I was, I was thinking. And I think that might be the scene that she actually is talking about, uh, towards the end of the film. Uh, and I said, huh, that's, it took, it even took me a while to compute the brilliance of Toni Morrison at process a little bit exactly what Mr. Uh, Demery Four said you know why would that be the scene that you would reference to tell somebody oh man remember the scene when he got killed remember how cool he looked how great he looked that suit he had on why would that be the scene that you would why would it be a scene earlier in the film uh, for anybody uh, and I love Jadine's uh, response where she says you mean the hair uh, in her armpit, and she gives that whole breakdown of that section. She says she was uncomfortable with the way Margaret stirred her into blackening up or un- universaling out, always alluding to or ferreting out what she believed were racial characteristics. She ended by resisting both, but it kept her alert about things she did not wish to be alert about. Man, this sounds like workplace racism. And she came back with a question. Workplace racism A plus uh, to Jadine's character uh, to respond with a question, and it throws off Margaret. Uh, she's like, "What do you mean her armpit?" I'm to talk about that. He makes some crazy comment like that. Let's see. <clears throat> uh, 
any of the other folks uh, who dialed in with a hand up, any other comments, uh, questions, suggestions you want to make sure you get in? Um, I don't know if this has been, uh, if you brought it up, uh, but uh, in the part where they were talking about going back to uh, uh, Margaret's history, uh, when they were, uh, when Valerian had an issue with uh, Margaret going to the movies with uh, uh, Andine and uh, Valerian uh, had to remind her about who they are and who she is. And uh, I think the, uh, this passage here where it says Valerian was never rude to Andine or Sydney. In fact, he pampered them. No, the point was not consorting with Negroes. The point was her ignorance and her origin. Now, what's so interesting is you know, he basically told his wife to, you know, stop going to the movies with them, you know, low life niggers. And even though she she personally didn't want to do it, she did it anyway. Uh, kind of reminds me of a uh, previous election where, you know, you had all these white women who were, you know, against Trump and, you know, uh, talking bad about Trump. But then when the election results come out, what was it, 54% of white women voted for Trump? So uh, that, that kind of reminds me of that. Uh, also, too, the name Valerian. Uh, I was looking that up, and it's, a, it's some sort of herb, like a pink herb that, that, uh, that's like a sedative. Uh, I haven't really pinpointed on why she used that name, because, uh, yeah, she, I think she uses, she uses these names uh, on purpose. So I'm just uh, maybe it's not maybe it's not been revealed yet on why that name is, but I don't know. Maybe I might have missed something if you or anybody else can, you know, clue me in on that. Uh, and also too, as far as the critique of the sun, I'm I'm kind of you know still uh, not clear on why their you know why their reactions their son uh, is is like that. Maybe it might be. Uh, maybe I might be missing something, or maybe it might be revealed later on. But uh, that's all I have on me in my life. Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. I think from the little pieces that they've uh, given us, like last week, they were Margaret and Valerian uh, were having that conversation about their son, Michael. And it was, what, are you going to go, uh, Valerian was talking to his wife, are you going to go live next to him on the reservation in a condo? Uh, and no nukes. Uh, so it's they're, they're kind of, or Toni Morrison is kind of painting uh, this picture that he would be a white person who would be, you know, green this and protect the environment. As I sit down with the establishment, she's kind of painting that sort of picture. Uh, and I could see why uh, Valerian, the white parent who is upset about this, you know, we've tried so hard to give him all these advantages and you know, this is what we, this is what we get. We vacation in the Caribbean and all this named a candy for him. And he's, you know, acting a fool, basically. Um, any other comments, questions? Uh, folks want to make sure they get in before we get to audio segment number two. Uh, the part where... She talked about how they were quarrelsome uh, on, uh, I guess that's page 68. They fought like two old cats, clawed each other, 
use each other to display quarrelsomeness, neither took seriously. Quarreling because they thought it was expected of them. Quarreling simply to exchange roles now and then for their own private amusement. The heavy would appear abused in public. The aggressive and selfish one would appear the eye and heart of his strength before an audience. And most of the time, like now, the plane of their battle was a child and the weapon public identification of human frailty. You know, that's quite a mouthful. And I think it's saying uh, that they kind of like uh, humiliating each other, it sounds like to me. And uh, just it's a method to it. And that argument, where it sounds like they're clawing each other and taking skin out, it's like racists will argue about how to practice racism, but they both agree to practice racism. I'll mute my line. Absolutely. No argument about that at all, and they make that explicit in the book. Margaret uh, makes that explicit. We are all uh, in agreement. You know, we, we should be dominating the jigs. Uh, incidentally, White people will argue about anything. You got quite a bit of that in the text uh, as well. Uh, Tony Morrison, they're arguing about the salad fork. You left the salad fork and the spoon on the table. That becomes, you know, the grounds for one of these arguments. Conflict about, and, and in the Caribbean, no less. I think, you know, Tony Morrison is saying something where you have wealthy, powerful white people uh, who have had a, a quality life, have offspring, everything that you could want. Uh, even have enough power that you can go and kill all species species that you do not like uh, in your area, can have a house in two different places, uh, and still with all of that, we'll sit around and argue and complain because somebody picked up the wrong, you know, toothpick at the dinner table or forgot to unfold their nap napkin properly. Racist man, racist woman. And we read that very first book that we read in the book club, Yurugu, uh, that sense of not being at ease, of being at war with everything, the earth, non-white people in particular, uh, the creator, everything. Just cannot be satisfied, cannot have peace, uh, even after all of this. Uh, very first book we read on the cows book club. Uh, any other comments, questions folks need to get in before we get to the second audio segment, still in chapter three? We'll assume folks are good. If you had a remaining thought, question, comment, uh, just write it down. We should have ample time once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, so we will go ahead and get started. Uh, again, we are in Chapter 3. Still a good bit uh, to go in that chapter. This is Toni Morrison's 1981 novel, Tar Baby. Context of White Supremacy. Audio segment number 2. Valerian took his hand from his forehead and stared deep into the peaches nestled in their silver bowl. I don't hate him. I love him. Margaret thinks I don't, but I do. I think about him all the time. You know, this isn't going to sound right, but I never was convinced that she did. Perhaps she did, in her way. I don't know. But she wasn't ready for him. 
She just wasn't ready. Now, now she's ready, when it's over. Now she wants to bake him cookies, see him off to school, tie his shoelaces, take care of him, now. Absurd. I don't believe it. I don't believe her. When he was just a little thing, I came home one day and went into the bathroom. I was standing there, and I heard this humming, singing, coming from somewhere in the room. I looked around, and then I found it, in the cabinet, under the sink. He was crouched in there, singing. That was the first time, but not the last. Every now and then I'd come home, he'd be under the sink, humming to himself. When I'd pull him out, ask him what he was doing there, he'd say he liked the soft. He was two, I think, two years old, looking in the dark for something soft. Now imagine how many soft, cuddly things he had in his room. Bunny rabbits, slippers, panda bears. I used to try to be it for him but I wasn't there during the day. She was, though. I sometimes had the feeling that she didn't talk to him very much. Then it would go away. The feeling, I mean. She'd change. She'd get interested in him, read to him, take him to shows, parks. Months would pass. Then I'd come home, and he'd be under the sink again, humming that little... I can't tell you how lonely... Lonely song. I wasn't imagining it. It was lonely. Well, he got older, and she'd go hot and cold, in and out. But he seemed to miss her so, need her so, that when she was attentive, he was like a slave to her. Then she'd lose interest again. When he was twelve, he went to boarding school, and things were better, until he came to visit. She would do things odd things to get his attention and keep it. Anything to keep his eyes on her. She'd make up things, threats to herself, attacks, insults, anything to see him fly into a rage and show how willing he was to defend her. I watched and tried to play it down or prove, prove she was making it up. I always checked. It was always nothing. All I ended up doing was making him angry with me. I thought, another child, but she said no, absolutely refused. I have until this day never understood that. When he left for college, I was relieved. It was already too late, but I still hoped he'd get out from under her. In a way he has, I suppose. Never visits, seldom writes, calls sometimes, complains about Indians, about water, about chemicals, meow, meow, meow. But he is on his own, I guess, on his own. But now, Valerian turned to Jadine and stared right at her chin. Now she wants to get hold of him again, tempting him with some fake poet. And she wants to go back with him, live near him. For a while, she says. Know what that means? A while, it means as soon as he trusts her again, needs her again, counts on her, she'll change her mind, leave him. I haven't seen him for three years, and the last couple of times I didn't like him, or even know him. But I loved him, 
just like I loved the boy under the sink, humming, that beautiful boy, with a smile like, like Sunday. The maiden aunts, huddled in the corners of the room, were smiling in their sleep. Jadine flared her nostrils in an effort not to yawn. Another cup of coffee, another glass of port, nothing could bring her alive to the memories of an old man. I ought to be saying something, she thought. I ought to be asking questions and making comments instead of smiling and nodding like a puppet. Hoping there was a residue of interest in her eyes, she held her chin toward him and continued to smile, but only a little, in case what he was remembering was poignant but not happy. Long ago, she had given up trying to be deft or profound or anything in the company of people she was not interested in who didn't thrill her. Gazing at her stem of crystal, she knew that whatever he was saying, her response was going to miss the point entirely. Her mind was in automatic park. She played with the little bit of port, gently swirling it around the well of her glass. Sunday, he was saying with the bell-full voice of ownership, like In the Land or The Whole of London or Toot Paris. He had a smile like Sunday, his Sunday. She wondered what Sunday was to this tall, thin man with eyes like the gloaming. Light? Warmth? A drawing room full of flowers? He was pouring himself a fifth glass of wine, too morose, too preoccupied with Sundays to think of offering her more. The peaches and walnuts were quiet in their silver bowls. She took a cigarette from a crystal cigarette holder. Next to it lay a round matchbox patterned like an Indian carpet. Inside were tiny white matchsticks with speckled gold heads that exploded with a hiss when struck. Three months, no, two, and the quiet to which the house succumbed at night still disturbed her. Sunset, three minutes of Titian blue and deep night, and with it a solid earthbound silence. No crickets, no frogs, no mosquitoes up here. Only the sounds, heard or imagined, that humans made. The hiss of a gold-headed match, the short cascade of wine into a goblet, the faint, very faint click and clatter of the kitchen being tidied, and now a scream, so loud and full of terror it woke the maiden aunts from their sleep in the corners of the room. And when they saw those blue if it's a boy blue eyes gone white with fear, they fled, pulling their maiden hair behind them. She stood in the doorway screaming, first at Valerian and then at Jadine, who rushed to her side. What? What? What is it? But she would not stop. She just bawled her beautiful hands into fists and pummeled her own temples, screaming louder. Valerian stared through port-softened eyes at his wife as though he, not she, were in pain. What is it, Margaret? Jadine put her arm around her shoulders. Sidney and Andine both burst through the other door. What's the matter? I don't know. She hurt herself? I don't know. Hold her hands or she will. What is it? What happened? Then Andine, fed up, shouted, Speak, woman! And Margaret sank to her knees, gasping for the breath with which to whisper the words, 
in my closet. In my closet. Her what? Her closet. Something's in her closet. What's in your closet? Black, she whispered, her eyes shut tight. Jadine dropped to her knees and leaned close to Margaret's face. You mean it's dark in your closet? Margaret shook her head and put the back of her fist in her mouth. Then Valerian spoke for the first time since she had come screaming into the room. Margaret, this is not the Met. It's a simple house on a simple island. Michael's not even here yet. But she was screaming again, and Jadine had to shout, Tell me, tell me! In my things, said Margaret. In all my things. What's she saying? Go look in her closet. Take the gun, Sidney. Andine was the ranking officer barking instructions. Right, he answered and ran back through the door to the kitchen. And be careful, Andine shouted after him. Hadn't I better call the harbor, Valerian? asked Jadine. Don't leave me, shrieked Margaret. All right, all right. Nanadine, give her some of that wine. Maybe she's had enough of that. No, she drank hardly anything. I heard her slam up the stairs in the middle of my dinner, said Andine. Between then and now, she could have killed a quart. Andine spoke without moving her lips, hoping it was enough to keep Valerian from hearing. He's in my things, Jade. Margaret was crying softly. Okay, okay. You have to believe me. I don't smell anything on her breath. Maybe she just flipped. Andine was mumbling again. Can't you get her to a chair? asked Valerian. He hated seeing her bent over like that on the floor. Come on, honey, let's sit here, said Jadine. What are you doing? Margaret was screaming again and trying to stand. Why are you acting like this? He's there. I saw him. Valerian, please. Somebody better... Go call the harbor. Let's wait for Sydney before we call the police, said Andine. She's drunk, said Valerian with the wisdom of the drunk, and nobody's paid her any attention for a whole hour. Why don't you believe me? She looked around at them all. They looked back at her, each thinking why, indeed, he didn't. And then they heard the footsteps of Sydney, plus one. Into the light of the 64-bulb chandelier came Sydney, pointing a 32 caliber pistol at the shoulder blades of a black man with dreadlock hair. It's him, Margaret screamed. Have mercy, said Andine. You can call the harbor now, Mr. Street, said Sidney. I'll do it, said Andine. Jadine said nothing. She did not dare. Valerian's mouth was open, and he closed it before saying, in a voice made stentorian by port, Good evening, sir. Would you care for a drink? The black man looked at Valerian, and it seemed to Jadine that there was a lot of space around his eyes. Chapter 4 Bees have no sting on Ile de Chevalier, nor honey. They are fat and lazy, curious about nothing, especially at noon. 
At noon, parrots sleep, and diamondbacks work down the trees toward the cooler undergrowth. At noon, the water in the mouths of orchids left there by the breakfast rain is warm. Children stick their fingers in them and scream as though scalded. People in town go inside because the sky weighs too much at noon. They wait for hot food with lots of pepper so the day will feel cooler by comparison. They drink sweet drinks and swallow bitter coffee to distract their insides from the heat and weight of the sky. But the eaves of the house on Ile de Chevalier were deep, the curtains light and light filtering. So the sky did not require the occupants to distract themselves. They were free to concentrate on whichever of their personal problems they wished. The wrapped and shelved ones, the ones they always meant to take down and open one day, or the ones they caressed every hour. Just as on beaches, in summer homes, in watering places, tourists the world over lay under the breeze behind their anti-sunglasses, wondering and mulling. So mulled the occupants of L'Arbre de la Croix that noon, the day after a man with living hair stayed for dinner. Outwardly, everything looked the same. Only the emperor butterflies appeared excited about something. Such vigorous flapping and blazing heat was uncommon for them. They hovered near the bedroom windows, but the shutters had remained closed all morning, and none of them could see a thing. They knew, however, that the woman was in there. Her blue-if-it's-a-boy-blue eyes, red-rimmed with longing for a trailer softened by Columbine, and for her ma. Leonora, the daily communicant, Leonora, whose head was covered at mass with lace older than Maine itself, who at sixty folded away her stockings and from then on wore white socks with her black Cuban-heeled Oxfords. Sweet, darling socks out of which grew strong, wide legs that had never been crossed at the knees. I have come full circle, Ma, thought Margaret. Now that the breakfast rain was over, and cleaned light filtered through the shutters, she was amazed to discover how much like the trailer it was. Full circle, she thought. I have come full circle. The trailer had been like this room. All economy and parallel lines. All secret storage and uncluttered surfaces. South Suzanne's idea of luxury back then had been the antique stuffed houses of old banger families. Blue bottles and white moldings, soft yellow wallpaper, and recovered federal chairs. But Margaret loved the trailer best, and when she married the non-Catholic over the objections of her parents and moved to Philadelphia, it took years to get rid of the afterboom, and now that she had, he'd left it and put her in this room that was sculpted, he said, not decorated, that for all its Mies van der Rohe and Max whatever reminded her of the trailer in South Suzanne, where she had been the envy of her girlfriends for the first dozen years of her life and was fourteen before she discovered that everybody in South Suzanne had not shared that envy, did not think the little toilet was cute or the way the tables folded down and beds became sofas was really neat like having your own dollhouse to live in. And when she did discover that most people thought living in a trailer was tacky, it might have crushed the life out of her, except that she discovered at the same time that all of South Suzanne was overwhelmed 
by her astonishing good looks. She agreed, finally, with their evaluation, but it didn't help much because it meant she had to be extra nice to other girls to keep them from getting mad at her. It meant having teachers go fuzzy in her presence, the men with glee, the women with distrust, fighting off cousins in cars, dentists in chairs, and feeling apologetic to every woman over 30. Privately, she neither valued it nor enjoyed it, and before she could learn to use it properly, she met an older man who was never fuzzy in her presence. She knew that because almost the first thing he said to her was, You really are beautiful, as if it could have been fake like the float but wasn't. And she smiled because he seemed surprised. Is that enough? she asked, and it was the first honest response she had ever made to a male compliment. Beauty is never enough, he said, but you are. The safety she heard in his voice was in his nice square fingernails, too, and it was that, not his money, that comforted her and made her feel of consequence under the beauty back down beneath it where her Margaret Hood lay in the same cup it had always lain in, faceless, silent, and trying like hell to please. And now she longed for her mother's trailer, so far from Philadelphia and L'Arbre de la Croix, but maybe not so far after all, since the bedroom she had locked herself into was a high-class duplication, minus the coziness of the first. Margaret Lenore stared into the spaces and thought desperately of coffee, but she did not want to ring up Sidney or Undine, for that would begin the day she was not sure she wanted to participate in. She had had no sleep to speak of, and now, drained of panic, wavering between anger and sorrow, she lay in bed. Things were not getting better. She was not getting better. She could feel it, and right smack in the middle of it, with Michael on his way, this had to happen. Literally, literally a nigger in the woodpile. And of course, Valerian had to think up something to shock everybody and actually ask him to dinner. A stranger who was found hiding in his own wife's closet. A bum that even Sidney wanted to shoot. He invited to dinner while she was shaking like a leaf on the floor. In her closet. The end. The living end. But as disgusting as that was, it wasn't as bad as Valerian's insult that it was okay for him to be there. And if it wasn't for the fact that Michael was coming, she would pack up that very day and really leave him this time. Valerian knew it, too, knew he could get away with it because Michael's Christmas visit was so important to her and would keep her from leaving. Now he was playing that boring music in the greenhouse as though nothing had happened. She was so hungry and coffee-starved, but she couldn't start things off just yet and Jade had knocked at all. Usually when Margaret overslept, Jade woke her with a smile, some funny piece of mail or an exciting advertisement. She would sink her cup of chocolate into Margaret's carpet. There were no end tables in the chic spar sculpture, and they would begin the day with some high-spirited girlish nonsense. Look, Chloe has four new parfums. Four. I think Mr. Broughton's lover has gone. 
You have been invited to dinner. You'd better go, because I think her mistress is due to visit them soon. Have you seen the three of them eating together? Andine says the cook over there said it makes her sick. Long ago, when Jade used to come for holiday visits, Margaret found her awkward and pouty. But now that she was grown up, she was pretty and a lot of fun. All those colleges hadn't made her uppity, and she was not at all the mother superior Andine had become. She didn't know how the dinner went. Did Jade stay? When did the man leave? She lifted her hand to press a button, then changed her mind. Maybe the man killed everybody, and she alone escaped because she had run up to her room and locked herself in. No, if he had, the boring music would not be going. God, maybe he will come back and do it later. And what could they do to stop him? All the neighbors would have to be told that a black man had been roaming around and it could happen again. They would have to share security and keep in touch with each other. Each house could post one of the help so that around the clock someone was on guard. She wouldn't mention Valerian's feeding him dinner first and trying to make her stay there and watch him eat it. The neighbors would think he was crazy and blame him for whatever the burglar did. Maybe he was already in jail. He couldn't have gotten off the island last night, but early in the morning she'd heard the jeep take off and return. Sidney probably drove him to the launch where harbor police shackled him. In any case, she wasn't going to pretend what Valerian did was okay by her. He hadn't even bothered to come in and explain, let alone apologize to her. Just as he never bothered to explain why he wouldn't go back to the States. He really expected her to steam in that jungle, knowing as he did what heat and sun and wind did to her skin. Knowing that after Maine, Philadelphia was the torrid zone for her. That her arms went pimento with even a little sun, and her back burst into pebbles. Still, he stayed in this place she had never enjoyed except when Michael was younger and they all vacationed there. Now it was a boiling graveyard made bearable, just bearable by Jade's company, shopping in Queen of France and lunches with the neighbors. She would never get through Christmas here without Michael, never. Already the confusion was coming back. The salad things last night, for instance, and earlier at breakfast— but with Michael around, she never forgot the names and uses of things. Margaret Street closed her eyes and turned over on her stomach, although she knew she would not sleep again. All night she'd been conscious of the closet door, where she had gone to find the poem, just to make sure Valerian was making fun of her and that there really was the line, and he glittered when he walked, in the poem Bridges had dedicated to Michael. It was a walk-in closet, with dressing rooms separate from the wardrobe, and a tiny storage niche at the very back where she kept things. And in there, right among all her most private stuff, she saw him, sitting on the floor, as calm as you please, and as filthy as could be. He looked at her, but never moved, and it seemed like hours before she could back out and hours more before she could make sound come from her open mouth. And how she got down the stairs, she would never in this world know. But when she did, it was like a dream, with them looking at her, but not looking as though they believed her, 
and Valerian was worst of all, sitting there like some lord or priest who doubted her confession, the completeness of it, and let her know with his eyes that she'd left something important out like the salad things. She had lain there all night with the lights on, thinking of her closet as a toilet now, where something rotten had been and still was. Only at dawn did she slip into a light and unrefreshing sleep, not dreaming something she was supposed to be dreaming. She was exhausted when she woke, but as night disappeared, so did her fear. Among the many things she felt, anger was the most consistent, but even that kept sliding away as her thoughts, unharnessed, turned sorrowful and galloped back to Leonora and a trailer sunk in Columbine. It was getting unbearably hot, but she would not toss aside the sheet. Her door was locked. Jade would come soon to see about her. Valerian could do what he wished. She herself would not budge. In her things. Actually, in her things. Probably jerking off. Black sperm was sticking in clots to her French jeans or down in the toe of her Anne Klein shoes. Didn't men sometimes jerk off in women's shoes? She'd have the whole closet full cleaned. Or better still, she'd throw them all out and buy everything new, from scratch. What a louse Valerian was. What a first-class louse. Wait till Michael hears about it. Just wait. And then she was crying about the night she won the beauty contest in a strapless gown that her mother had to borrow money from Uncle Adolf for and a gold cross that she always wore until her sister-in-law told her only whores wore crosses. The bitch. She lay there wiping teary cheeks with the top hem of a Vera sheet. There was nothing the cool, sculptured spaces could do to keep her from forgetting the fact that she was almost fifty, sitting on a hill in the middle of a jungle, in the middle of the ocean, where the temperature was on broil and not even a TV with anything on it she could understand, and where her husband was punishing her for forgetting to put the salad things back, and there was no one to talk to except Jade, and where her sex life had become such a wreck, it was downright interesting. And if that wasn't enough, now this nigger, he lets in this real live dope attic ape just to get back at her wanting to live near Michael. We'll see about that, she said. Just wait till Michael comes. She whispered so nobody would hear, and nobody did, not even the emperor butterflies. They were clinging to the windows of another bedroom, trying to see for themselves what the angel trumpets had described to them. The hides of ninety baby seals, stitched together so nicely, you could not tell what part had sheltered their cute little hearts and which had cushioned their skulls. They had not seen the coat at all, but a few days ago, a bunch of them had heard the woman called Jade telling the woman called Margaret all about it. The butterflies didn't believe it and went to see for themselves. Sure enough, there it was, swirling around the naked body of the woman called Jade, who opened the French windows and greeted the emperor butterflies with a smile, but the heavy one called Andine said, Shoo, shoo. Leave them alone, Nana Dean. They don't bother anything. They die and have to be swept up. 
You should put some clothes on and cover yourself up. I thought you asked me to come up and see your coat, not your privates. This is the best way to feel it. Here, feel. Well, it's nice enough, no question about that. Mr. Street see it yet? No, just you and Margaret. What'd she say? She loved it, said it was prettier than hers. Does this mean you're going to marry him? Jadine dug her hands deep into the pockets and spun around. Her hair was as black and shiny as the coat. Who knows? He must mean business if he fly that out to you all the way from Paris. And he must expect you back there. Lord knows you don't need a sealskin coat down here. It's just a Christmas present, Nana Dean. It's not just anything, honey. I could buy a house with what that cost. No, you couldn't. I'd lock it up somewhere if I were you. I have to find a cool place for it. Maybe Valerian will let me use the air-conditioned part of his greenhouse. You crazy? Don't you dare leave that coat out there. There you go again. Nothing's going to happen, I told you. He'll be out of here by tonight. He better be. I'm not going to spend another night underneath the same roof with him. Apparently, you've spent several. We all have. Well, I didn't know it. Although why I didn't, I can't figure. Stuff has been missing for weeks. All my chocolate, the Evian, no telling what else. I'm going to take inventory, me and Sydney. What for? What he ate, just replace. He'll be out of here tomorrow. You said tonight. It's not my house, Nana Dean. Valerian invited him to dinner. Crazy. So it's Valerian who has to tell him to go. Why'd he put him in the guest room, though? Sidney almost had a stroke when Mr. Street told him to take him there. Well, if he didn't have a stroke when he said hi to him, he won't have one at all. He said hi? Sidney didn't tell me about that. Unbelievable. Well, I can't stay up here gawking at a coat. I have to get the breakfast things cleared up. Did you call Solange yet? No, I'll do it now. How did you manage to place orders before I came? It was a mess, believe me. I can't get my tongue right for that language. Three geese, then, and another quart of raspberries? That should do it. I wish they'd tell me things. How can I cook if I don't know how many's eaten? Andine walked over to Jadine's bed and straightened the sheets. Now, when is he due? Christmas Eve, I think, just after Michael gets here. You sure? No, but if he's a Christmas present, he'll have to be here by Christmas, won't he? I can't believe that. Giving your son a whole human being for a Christmas present. Michael worships him. Took all of his courses at college. Now he'll own him, I suspect. What money can't buy? I've got to go. I want to fix a nice lunch for Sidney. He's still shook. Tell him not to worry. I'll try, but you saw him at breakfast. Mean as a tampered rooster. It'll be all right now, I'm telling you. Andine left, holding her hand to her neck, hoping Jadine was right and that Mr. Street was finished being funny and would get rid of that thieving Negro before it was too late. A crazy white man and a crazy black is a shake too much, she thought. 
She glanced quickly down the hall to the door of the room where he had been put. It was closed. Still asleep, she guessed. A night prowler. Sleeps all day, prowls all night. Thieving Nigra. So we are in Chapter 4. Thieving Nigra. Shackled Nigra had a gun pointed at him. We still don't have a name. I did say we should be mindful of the names in this book. Maybe even be mindful of people who don't have a name. A night prowler. Sleeps all day. Prowls all night. Context of white supremacy. The number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you did not get to participate after the first audio segment, you should dial in uh, now or press star 61. Either or. Uh, Do that now as opposed to waiting until the last five minutes uh, if you think you might want to join the conversation. Certainly, if we have uh, any thoughts, as I said, on on some of the elements of white masculinity that have been presented thus far, uh, the way that the white sun is discussed, even some of the ways that uh, Valerian's uh, character is described, uh, you can feel free uh, to join us. Uh, on that one, uh, there's so much more to discuss from what we got in the second audio segment. Uh, I'll look at the switchboard, Star 6-1. Uh, folks who dialed in with us previously, Mr. Demery 4, uh, Henry in Chicago, you should be with us. I will nab additional hands as I see them. Ooh. Uh, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, my beer. Greetings, Mr. Demery Ford. Okay, I think now we're beginning to see it looks as though that Margaret was abusive to Michael and judged on, you know, what Valerian was saying, coming home and finding the little boy, uh, I guess, in an enclosed face like a closet or something singing. Uh, But you know, I can't anticipate what could possibly, uh, you know, if it's alcoholism, you know, that's what Valerian thinks, that she drinks all the time. She can't remember what things are used for. She forgets how to use a fork. She's okay with a spoon. But you know, all this weird behavior, and it's not symptom, uh, symptomatic of anything other than, you know, maybe dementia. So, but she abused her son, and then now, <laughs> I was wondering why the black guy has to show up in her room, in her clothes, you know, that, and then the old nigga in the woodpile uh, phrase, that was, you know, I think that when they used that, it was to say that, you know, it may have been some black people in your lineage. As a white person, it may have been a nigga in the woodpile, you know, 
Uh, but I think uh, this guy had, doesn't have a name yet, but uh, <laughs> you know what's strange is that you find a black man in your wife's closet and you invite him to dinner. I don't know what to think about that. But, uh, you know, I'll just hang in there. I guess it's, uh, it'll all come, come around. I'll meet my line. That's thing. Margaret said she didn't know what to think about that either. Uh, other folks, much obliged, Mr. Demery for others who dialed in, uh, with a hand up line should be open. Uh, feel free. I'm here. Greetings, Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, when, uh, Valerian was talking about, uh, his son in regards to, him humming to himself. Uh, the way he described it uh, in the last chapter when he says, uh, then I come home and he'd be under the sink again, humming that little, I can't tell, how lonely, lonely song. And it goes back to the theme of loneliness again. I'm, I'm starting to see there's a pattern here with the uh, loneliness. Uh, now the son Michael is, uh, you know, associated with this, according to uh, uh, Valerian's description of how he sung that song. And uh, I kind of agree with uh, uh, Jimmy Four about uh, Margaret possibly abusing uh, Michael when he was a boy. Um, and, you know, I like the way uh, Toni Morrison, you know, comes like with the the innermost feelings of of uh, of people or characters in these stories, because Margaret's, you know, innermost feelings of of of, of racism, you know, just uh, you know that little nigger, you know, hiding in my closet or whatever, and but yet she's, you know, she's consorting with Odin, you know, going to the movies with him, you know, that's what you know races do. They they want to show you that, you know, oh, yeah, we're friendly to black folks, but then, you know, get out of line and all of a sudden you're a nigger now. Uh, so uh, that, you know, that was a that was an interesting uh, thing. And also, too, how she also kind of sexualized him, talking about, uh, you know, she was he probably was in there jerking off and, you know, and uh, kind of reminds me of uh, Dr. Curry's book, The Man Knot, and how. You know, they like to uh, sexualize the black body. Probably, I think that was also in uh, uh, Delectable Negro as well. So um, that's all I have in my life. Much obliged, uh, Henry in Chicago. Loneliness, great thing to catch uh, early in the text. We'll have to uh, proceed. And maybe even to the, the point that you brought up uh, about the book talking about Michael uh, being lonely, white male, white child, I guess, in this uh, instance. Uh, and I said previously after the first audio segment about, you know, you saying that uh, loneliness impacts uh, black people, victims of racism more so than white people. Then she comes back with an example of a white character complaining about loneliness, maybe even too with Margaret. 
you want to address at least uh, based on what we've seen in the book does the book seem to suggest that black people are struggling with loneliness more than the white people are well um going you know thinking about the earlier chapters uh with uh the stowaway and it seemed like his loneliness kind of like had him on edge a lot you know with with uh, uh i guess he was you know he seemed like uh, the story seemed like it was kind of like just randomly giving him certain scenes and the way he was kind of seeing people but not interacting with people uh it kind of seemed like he, you know, he was like on edge with a lot of things uh, in that first chapter. I have to go back and reread it again. Uh, with with Jadine, you know, it, you had the scene where, you know, she saw the African woman, and then next thing you know, she's spitting that, you know, she's spitting on her. So it's like she has this thing where, uh, you know, she's experiencing loneliness, and then she sees somebody that kind of looks like her, and then, you know, she has this. Incident of the African woman spitting at her, whereas with with the white people, it's like you know they're all rich, you know, and it's like you know with Valerian. Valerian's family owns a, a candy company, so when I say that their quality of life is you know it hasn't been affected, I mean it affects them differently. But you know, with white people, their quality of life is not affected by loneliness because you know they're going to be taken care of one way or the other. You know, in the system of white supremacy, they're going to be taken care of, whether they're, you know, with the community or they feel alone or whatever, they're going to be taken care of. Uh, whereas, like, you know, for instance, the stowaway, who I think this might be the character that they found in the closet. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I, I'm, I'm thinking that this character, this is the same character. Uh, you know, he's, you know, uh, uh, in people's houses and maybe trying to find something to eat, you know, and. And, you know, he's probably hungry. So it's like, you know, he's 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 on edge. But that that's the effect of loneliness from him compared to, like, say, you know, uh, the white characters who, you know, whether they feel lonely or not, they're going to be taken care of one way or the other. Interesting. Interesting. Much obliged uh, for giving us the additional detail, Henry, in Chicago. Uh, the black character, I don't know. We'll have to see how it unfolds. He's been invited to dinner, uh, they say, so we'll have to see how lonely he remains. Uh, Jadine is, is well taken care of. She's traveled to Europe and done her thing. She's, you know, not a struggling stowaway, uh, and she still seems to be having some difficulties. Uh, yeah, we'll keep a tab on loneliness as we proceed. Uh, check in. Make sure we're not missing folks. Again, star six one, uh, other folks who are uh, listening in. If you have a uh, question, comment, thought as we move through the book, uh, looking at my own notes, got the cat again uh, as soon as we, we end. And then he continues, uh, Valerian continues his dialogue about his white child, his offspring, saying Michael calls sometimes complains about Indians. Hmm about water, about chemicals. That's why I said he would be one of those do-gooder, you know, Greenpeace-type white liberals voted for Bernie Sanders-type uh, whites-type uh, suspected racists. Uh, let's see. 
this could be a theme for the book as well. Uh, white people being dis disgruntled, uh, disappointed with their children. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there's a suggestion that Margaret may have been uh, under the influence uh, when she, when they're looking at the whole uh, or going to find the the Negro in her closet uh, a few times before they find him. Uh, I think on Dean says, I don't smell anything on her breath. And Malaria says, oh, she's just drunk. Uh, and there's, oh, wait a minute. There's a Negro here. Whoops. Might have been right. That might be our, our fault, uh, Margaret. You were right. Um black male ends up with a gun on him uh, pretty early uh, in the book. Black privilege, I reckon. Uh, we move into chapter four where I guess we get additional uh, background information about Margaret, the principal beauty of Maine uh, and talking about growing up where she was uh, in a trailer truck park. Uh, and I guess she thought that was cool and it took a while before she realized that that was not cool uh, and that her other friends didn't think it was cool and that what uh, ended up being power power for her uh, was her attractiveness as a white woman the pale skin red hair that's what made her stand out to Valerian this powerful white man and there you go so to get a ba additional background information uh, on her uh, let's see Hmm. Oh, we get the nigger in the wood pile reference. Mr. Demery four already covered that. Uh, let's see. Invited to dinner. She's disgusted about that. Uh, let's see. The... Oh, I thought the abuse that was so important uh, and given some of the background information uh, when Valerian is talking uh, about uh, Michael and saying, no, I love my son, even though he complains and meow, meow, meow and all of this and talking about how he was lonely and growing up as a child and kind of the sadistic way that his mother would show him attention, show him affection. And then, you know, when he was there and with her and enraptured with her. And then she would, you know, be destined again and kind of go back and forth uh, through this ritual. Uh, I thought that was uh, an excellent point uh, because that is uh, abuse and seems kind of sadistic. Maybe we'll get more detail uh, but what, about what was uh, taking place there. But I would definitely say it's abuse. And it would definitely be another illustration of what I've said consistently about white people not valuing children uh, in white culture collectively, globally. You see so many uh, examples of that. Uh, this would be another, uh, in my view, but I think that's important. The detail that are given there, uh, the details that were given there, uh, and even his prediction that she would just do this again, uh, that if he were to come and show her attention, uh, or if she were to go and stay with him in Philadelphia or on the reservation or wherever, uh, that she would just do the same thing again, uh, that that seems to be her mode of operation. Uh, let's see. Hmm. 
Oh, wait a minute. She says, I just wanted to uh, share some of the detail that uh, Toni Morrison included on this section here where Margaret is kind of going through her own outrage at being doubted about this Negro being in the in her closet uh, where she says uh, she got down the stairs. She would never in this world know how she got down the stairs in this world. She would never know. But when she did it, it was like a dream with them looking at her, but not looking as though they believed her, and Valerian was the worst of all, sitting there like some sort of lord or priest who doubted her confession, the completeness of it, and let her know with his eyes that she'd left something important out, like the salad things. Uh, she had lain there all night with the lights on, thinking of her closet as a toilet now, where something rotten had been and still was. Um, wow, what a visceral... Uh, comparison to this Negro who has fouled things up. Uh, she continues with the, oh yeah, that's with the jerking off. I thought that was so important. Uh, the man not delectable Negro black person is sexualized uh, immediately uh, for doing something sexual even though it appears in this case we didn't get any evidence uh, of that. They didn't say he was nude or anything of that nature. Um she calls him a louse. They don't even use that word anymore. What a louse uh, Valerian was. A louse, a small, wingless, parasitic insect that lives on the skin of mammals and birds. Hmm. Oh, and then all the way down. Uh, a louse, informal, a contemptible or unpleasant person. Also to spoil or ruin, to louse something up. Uh, let's see. She says, uh, he was a louse, a first-class louse. Uh, let's see. Oh, I did highlight. She says the night that she won the beauty contest, uh, which allegedly, you know, made her life uh, all right, how she ended up with Valerian. She said that her mother, the night she was crying about the night she won the beauty contest in a strapless gown, that her mother had to borrow the money from Uncle Adolf sly way of weaving in some of the more important names in the system of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. Well, then she says, and if that wasn't enough now, this nigger, he lets in this real live dope addict ape just to get back at her wanting to live near Michael. Wow. This is supposed to be the well-meaning white woman who was hanging out with the help. Uh, let's see. And then they go into their dialogue prowls at night a crazy white man and a crazy black is a shake too much she thought hmm. I will pause there uh, double check to see if any of the other folks have question uh, thought anything else uh, stood out in the sections that we read today the number again 605 313 5164 the code 564 Nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, any other thoughts, questions, uh, suggestions uh, folks have from what we've heard in about the first four chapters uh, of Tony Morrison's Tar Baby? Uh, yeah, Gus, uh, I think it's some significance to the uh, coat that was sent to her some 
the skin, seal skin coat. I think, uh, I guess it was a boyfriend sent her a coat and someone said that they could buy a house with uh, what the coat costs. I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I can't put it all together, but I don't see how the coat plays in. But uh, I think that's worth mentioning. You know, why would he send a seal skin coat uh, to her? Uh, something else I wanted to say. Uh, Oh, uh, Margaret went through uh, an elaborate uh, ritual every night, you know, beautifying herself before she went to bed. And then uh, the book says she didn't sleep a lot, somewhere in between sleep and being awake. And then uh, her reaction when the black man was in the closet at all seems really suspicious. And she's screaming at the top of her voice, you know, uh, so that if anybody was going to do anything, I guess, you know, that would excite it to happen. So if Valerian had showed up with a gun, her screaming, uh, you know, would add insult to injury, the man being in your house, if, you know, that was a scenario played out today. Uh, they probably be calling nine one one, but I'll mute my line. Much obliged, Mister Demery Ford. If that had happened today, uh, stateside, if this had happened in Philadelphia or uh, Wisconsin, Florida, probably Maryland, Washington State, a number of areas, uh, it wouldn't have been a prowler. It would have just been, you know, call the enforcement officials. We will have a uh, corpse of a Negro for them to collect. It'll be on the front lawn. They have the castle law and that's that. We can, you know, ask questions later. You can just shoot first. You've got a nigger on your property, like my goodness. Uh, any other folks uh, with questions, suggestions uh, from our second study session on Toni Morrison's Tar Baby? Looking back on that scene that Mr. Demery Ford just mentioned about the sealskin uh, coat. Uh, when Jadine gets it, Jadine dug her hands deep into the pockets and spun around. Her hair was as black and shiny as the coat. Who knows? He must mean business if he fly that out to you all the way from Paris, and he must expect you back there. Lord knows you don't need a sealskin coat down here. It's just a Christmas present, Nadine. It's not just anything. Honey, I could buy a house with what that cost. Uh, stop there. I think it's interesting that this seal skin coat gets compared to her. Black person being compared to uh, an animal in this tragic arrangement uh, thing. This this is supposed to be a super valuable uh, jacket. Uh, this seal skin coat. But I also think it's important sending a seal skin coat to someone in the Caribbean. Lord knows you don't need this down here. I mean, maybe you're coming back. Maybe you're not. Maybe we're supposed to get married, uh, but you certainly don't need this here. Uh, if you're going to be here, this is, you know, 
worthless uh, to get. It's not even a gift. doesn't matter how much it costs. This is totally worthless uh, to you down here to just be something to be sitting in, you know, hopefully Valerian's one air-conditioned uh, vicinity. And, you know, that's about that. We can all go in maybe once a month and, and rub on it, but it'd be totally worthless, uh, which might be an interesting metaphor for this tragic arrangement. Save the seals. Save the seals. A lot of ruined and we've had a lot of that already in this book. A lot of animals uh, desecrated. Valerian goes out and hunts snakes uh, and he pitched in with other whites on the island to bring in animals to get rid of invasive species that they didn't like. Uh, I'm sure uh, his son, Michael, they've been complaining about that, the environment, so they say. But a lot of that uh, with animals, they want geese uh, for the Christmas meal and turkey. A lot of destruction uh, of animals. Uh, in the book, the seal as well for the coat. Uh, any other comments? Folks want to make sure they get in observations. I wanted to say one last thing uh, about you. You reminded me uh, white people changing the species in uh, Bermuda when Ross Perot uh, lived over there, bought a house, and he broke chickens with him and now all these feral chickens are running around Bermuda and it's going to be a problem the government's trying to do something about it and at the same time well some I guess it's the early 90s he also tried to dynamite the coral reefs in Bermuda and we all know that would have been an environmental disaster to destroy the coral reef, but that's how insistent he was, and that so he could get his yacht closer to his uh, uh, multi-million-dollar home over there. I'm my line. That's Valerian right there. <laughs> Excuse me. That's Valerian. Destroy, you know, the whole habitat. Can't just have a greenhouse. Bring all these uh, chickens. Uh, over here and cause them more problems uh, with, you know, having them in the area where they are not a native uh, species. Uh, and then I want to blow up the coral reef, get my little boat a little bit closer. Urugu, great illustration, exactly what we talked about. Uh, any other comments, suggestions, questions? Uh, I said uh, I feel much more grounded in the text uh, this week. Generally, that would happen with most, most books, but I think especially with a narrative, it takes a little while just to get who are the characters again? Who are we talking about? Okay, make sure that you're locked in, but I'm I'm feeling great now. I got everybody. Let's do it. Ready to roll. Uh, anything else uh, folks want to make sure they touch on? We'll assume folks are satisfied again uh, safety to all the uh, cows listeners in the Hurricane Dorian path. I uh, hope you all are safe and taking uh, maximum precautions. Take it seriously. Uh, we will definitely be thinking, praying for your safety. Uh, drop an email. Uh, hopefully, uh, by the time December comes, folks will have survived safely. Hurricane season will be over, and we can plan for the cow's 10-year anniversary 
2019 Counter Racist Yoga Retreat in Florida, December 28 to January 1. Plant-based meals provided by Chef Nadira. Counter Racism Workshops. Yoga every day. Looking forward to it. Uh, we will de-stress from all of this holiday nonsense that they are plotting on uh, in the book. Uh, we can eat great. I was listening. They have mentioned the mangoes, the pineapples, lots and lots of fresh fruits, veggies. We will be having something like that. Not the geese, not the turkey and all the rest, the liver. Uh, we'll be having fresh fruits, veggies, and looking forward to plot a constructive 2020. Drop an email if you need details. Have questions. We'll be here tomorrow. Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, quite a bit uh, to review. Uh, I guess the school year is starting, so if folks have school codes they would like to share, parents uh, and or students, uh, feel free. That is the workplace, but that'll be tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We'll be here for the compensatory call-in on Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. With that, much obliged for your participation. I hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening. Could have been watching football. We'll be here in 24 hours. Uh, once again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. They thought Margaret was drunk, suspected racist, but they thought she was drunk. They weren't even going to listen to her with uh, a nigger in the woodpile. They were going to totally ignore her. It's just, oh, she's drunk. Sometimes you can lose some of your credibility if people think you are not functioning correctly because you are under the influence. Certainly that will happen with racists. In addition to being sober, let's do everything we can every time driver or passenger to be buckled up when we are in a vehicle, minimizing contact with enforcement officers to our best, to the best of our ability. Uh, if we are driving, we're not on the cell phone. Again, just doing all the little things to try to keep ourselves as safe as we can and to minimize opportunities for terrorist attack. With that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cows signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother problem. you're a victim yeah. i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs> it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.